reason these disturbances, they followed you to a new home, is because it's not the house that's haunted. It's your son. So, 1,100 men went in the war. 360 men come out. The sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. My name is Robert Hawkins. Approximately seven hours ago, uh, something attacked the city. Um, found this. If you're watching this, then you know more about it than I do. California, stay away from me. Stay away from me. I'm not, I'm not coming here. John Doe has the upper hand. And on that day, Ahab will go to his grave, but he'll rise again within the hour. He will rise and beckon that all, all save one, shall follow. They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. Hello, welcome once again to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. This is a spin-off of the Dark Discussions podcast, which can all be found on www.darkdiscussions.com, darkdiscussions.com, and also on iTunes and Stitcher. My name is Philip, and I'm here to review some films. Basically, what happened is I have a large collection of boutique label Blu-rays and DVDs, such as companies as Arrow, or Redemption, or Criterion Collection, or Code Red, or Vinegar Syndrome, and so forth. And so what I've decided to do is basically do uh, anywhere between 15 to 25 minute reviews on these discs. Uh, folks don't know uh, what that is all about um, on the Dark Discussions podcast. We have a segment called Terror Tantrums by author Patrick Lacey, who reviews one boutique disc weekly and discusses whether the film is any good, the extras on the disc, as well as uh, the most important thing of all, which is the transfer and whether or not uh, the quality of the video and audio is good because as we know many of these old films from smaller companies or the independents or foreign films from Europe that have landed up either in the public domain or been uh, basically ignored they are generally released on disc or even on VOD in horrible video and or audio quality which is uh, very unfortunate because for example think of something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and having to watch it in a crappy copy of the movie uh, as we've seen in the past Night of the Living Dead which landed in the public domain never mind various older films such as 
uh, White Zombie by, uh, or I should say starring Bela Lugosi, have always remained uh, in crappy quality because uh, they're just either forgotten or put out by any two-bit um, company just to make a quick buck. However, a lot of these boutique companies have come out and have taken these cult films and remastered them in a way that gives us, the viewers who like cult horror films or midnight movies or drive-in films, a chance to see it as if it is brand new, or if not brand new, at least in a quality as good as anything you would see from the same era that the film came out. Now, a couple of things. Uh, I did get some feedback from a few folks. Uh, I would like to thank David Koning for his kind words on Twitter, where he, uh, he said he enjoyed uh, the Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews Volume 1 and 2. Also, uh, Malcolm Johnson and Dustin of Horror Corridor. Horror Corridor, that's right, a podcast that folks could check out. Uh, Dustin Watson is uh, the man, and he actually um, gave me some good feedback on this uh, podcast. And also to Paul Hewson, Paul Hewson of, I believe, the New England area, who um, actually uh, says he has enjoyed uh, the Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, uh, specifically Volume 2. He thought Volume 1 being um, the first episode, I may have gone into some side things that weren't um, things that he necessarily was interested in, but he did say the second was fantastic, and I appreciate that, and uh, thank you everybody for any feedback. Um, Now, uh, I guess we can probably start and get into the reviews. there's no rhyme or reason. Uh, basically, it's what films I just feel like pulling off my DVD shelf that I have not seen or haven't seen for some time, and uh, basically doing uh, the 15 to 25 minute review either right after the film or um, a few days later after I do research and take notes on some things that I would like to talk about uh, on the films. So. Uh, Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, let's get into the first review. The film I'm going to review now is a film that actually has been released by two boutique companies uh, in the past. Uh, The first was by Scorpion Releasing, and what it is is basically the film... um, is owned by somebody, the, the the original film, the copyrights, whatever, the, the rights. And basically Scorpion releasing was able to get the rights to release the film as a boutique label release. And they were able to release it like 3,000 copies of it or, or something like that. And then after they'd print their 3,000 copies, the movie is then reverted back to the original right owner who then was able to sell the rights to Vinegar Syndrome, uh, which then released their version of the film in January of 2017. Um, now, this film um, is simply called Don't Answer the Phone, 
which is a running joke in a sense because at that time in the 70s and 80s uh, there were a lot of films that began with don't and uh, for example uh, in the faux uh, grindhouse film called Grindhouse by uh, Quentin Tarantino and um, uh, Rodriguez, the director Rodriguez, um, there's the trailer, the fake trailer for Don't that plays between the two films and um, it plays as, as a joke off of uh, films named Don't. Now this film was released in 1980 and uh, some folks uh, or most folks would call it a slasher film. Um, however, it was a curiosity at the time because even though we already had Psycho and all the Italian giallos and various uh, 42nd Street horror films such as Psycho Lover and things like that that are all predating slashers, um, Black Christmas would be another. Um, in s as we all know, in 78, Halloween by John Carpenter came out and that was the one that brought slashers to um, the mainstream audience, basically the general population, and um, immediately everybody started copying, and as we know, Friday the 13th was the very next film to do so, right after Halloween, and, and some would say is even a better film than Halloween, um, at least the original, and um, the thing is, is that slashers then branched, and there were two types of slashers that came out. And and that's that's the curiosity. You got your hot co-head slashers, so your graduation days and your prom nights, and and films of that nature. But then you had your gritty, very dark, bleak, and in some cases people would call offensive ones, and that would be films like Maniac, or Portrait Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, or um, for example, don't answer the phone, which would be this one. So more sadistic and sexual violence rather than um, hot, uh, perky teenagers or college coeds that just are getting slaughtered. Um, so uh, this this film here it falls into the second category, the more gritty and dark, or at least most critics um, and film historians say so anyway, and, and I, I, could, I could see that. Um, I, I would agree with that. Um, though I, I wouldn't call it offensive by any means, because um, if you're a midnight movie fan or a horror fan or an exploitation fan, um, you know, I mean, that's the, the reason you, you watch these films is for the scares and the darkness and, and the things of that nature. And, and so uh, I wouldn't call it offensive at all. I would call it actually um, um, an interesting film in the, the horror genre. Um, now, uh, the film, uh, or at least on the poster, um, the cast is listed as follows. It's listed as um, Nicholas Worth, James Westmoreland, Flo Lawrence, Ben Frank, Denise Gallick, there's a number of other folks, too, that star in the film. There's a, it's actually a pretty good cast, big cast. Uh, but those are the folks that are at least on the, um, the movie poster. Uh, but let me, let me uh, read the back jackets of both the Scorpion releasing and the Vinegar Syndrome um, discs of what the films are, rather than going to IMDb or Wiki. 
Uh, so this is what um, the Scorpion releasing f uh, says. It says the following. He'll know you're alone. A Vietnam veteran photographer, played by Nicholas Worth, terrorizes Los Angeles by going around strangling young women in their homes while taunting psychologist, played by Flo Garish, by calling her radio call-in show under the alias of Ramon to describe his misogynistic ways. Meanwhile, two police detectives, James Westmoreland and Ben Franks, are close behind the psycho, hoping he'll slip up and make a mistake. Now, see it in widescreen from a brand new HD master. Um, Scorpion Releasing has, um, as I, I mentioned, uh, the, the HD master from the original negative. Uh, auto, audio interview uh, with uh, star James Westmoreland, who played one of the police officers. A on-camera interview with star Nicholas Worth, who uh, is actually the, the, the lead actor of the film. And then the original trailer. Now, the Vinegar Syndrome, uh, let me read their back jacket, and then also th what's on the disc, says the following. Vietnam vet Kirk Smith, played by Nicholas Worth, spends his days photographing pretty girls. He spends his nights, however, strangling them. With the LAPD baffled by what seems to be a series of random killings, radio psychiatrist Lindsay Gale begins receiving menacing calls from Smith, who then sets his murderous sights on her patients and soon Gail herself. One-time director Robert Hammer's gripping and suspenseful early slasher Don't Answer the Phone blends unnerving psychological drama with brutal violence complemented by a career performance from Nicholas Worth and atmospheric cinematography by James L. Carter, uh, most known for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Vinegar Syndrome presents this genre film masterpiece freshly restored in a 4K a transfer from its recently discovered 35mm original camera negative and looking better than it ever has on video before. Uh, once again it says here for special features scanned and restored in 4K from 35 original camera negative commentary track with writer producer director Robert Hammer uh, director introduction and answering the phone video interview with star Nicholas Worth, for what it's worth, career retrospective with Nicholas Worth, isolated soundtrack by composer Byron Alfred, original theatrical trailer, multiple TV spots, promotional still gallery, 16-page booklet with essay by Michael Gingold, reversible cover artwork, and then English uh, subtitles for those hearing impaired um, so it looks like it has pretty much everything that the, co uh, the, the scorpion releasing has except for the audio interview with star James Westmoreland which um, it appears wasn't carried over to the vinegar syndrome uh, but otherwise it has more than the scorpion releasing um, and uh, has pretty much everything the Scorpion releasing has except for the one audio interview. Um, now uh, let's, let's discuss uh, some of the, the things about this film. Um, now obviously uh, it has uh, a one-time director meaning the director did nothing else uh, as a director for a motion picture anyway. Whether he did shorts uh, I have no idea. Um, but um, 
He directed this one film, and that's it. Uh, his other credits are minimal. Uh, for example, he was a writer for uh, a couple of TV shows, um, nothing that I know of. Uh, they were from the 70s, so I'm, I'm not really familiar with them. Um, and then he also co-wrote the screenplay for this film here. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I do have a little wiki bio uh, or IMDb bio for the guy, and uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, even though a lot of these podcasts, people don't want to hear someone just read off wiki or IMDb stuff continuously. Uh, they want to hear opinions and things of that nature, which is true. But uh, I want to read a little bit about this Robert Hammett guy because this film is a very, even though he's only a one-time director it is a curiosity and the man that's behind the film should get a little dibs for it and so I'm gonna do that and this is what it says it says Robert Hammer was one-shot filmmaker whose one film has been well appreciated by fans for almost 30 years now that film was the thriller don't answer the phone a story about a maniacal killer played to the hilt by the late great Nicholas Worth being tracked by the police the film was decried at the time by critics for its perceived misogyny, but fans liked what they saw and were even cheering on Worth as he pulled off his murders. Hammer spent his life before filmmaking playing his trade as both a photographer, like Worth's character, and had a military background as well, having served with the Army Security Agency on various covert operations. He studied karate for 25 years with Ed Parker and ultimately became a documentary filmmaker, spending time with rock acts such as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, going on the road with them for three years, and the Steve Miller Band. In this capacity, he met composer Byron Alfred, uh, Allred, I'm sorry, who composed the music for, for this film. Uh, when the screenplay Nightline by Knight Michael Curtis came along, he was interested and it was purchased for... $2,500. However, it would have been too expensive to film as it was, and a substantial rewrite was needed. Hammer filmed it in about eight, 18 days and found working with the low budget quite challenging. Without official permission to shoot in locations, the film was largely shot grill style. And a lot of this stuff you can actually hear on uh, the commentary and the interviews on, on the discs. Uh, after the film had come out, Hammer went through four different development deals for about two years with Crown International, uh, which released a lot of great um, genre films, and a lot of them are, are now coming out on uh, disc. And, and to be honest, Vinegar Syndrome, that's how Vinegar Syndrome got the, the rights to this film. Uh, they have a deal with whoever owns the Crown International um, Film Vault. They've made a deal with them in 2016 and have begun releasing a number of these films um, in 2017 and uh, this film here don't answer the phone is one of Crown International Pictures uh, films and so that's that's the reason why uh, Vinegar Centro uh, is releasing it um, in 2017 this past January because they actually uh, have a deal with Crown International um, how, how now back to um, Hammer and what he had to say uh, about him is uh, uh, even though he had this, this four things in development of Crown International, none of them came to fruition, and Hammer decided that a career change would be wise. He spent the years since working as CFO for various technical corporations, having found that he had an aptitude for money management. Gigs he has had in this capacity included being the VP of Finance at CNET. 
It's a pretty big company. That's pretty impressive, actually. Uh, Hammer has stated that he needed time to appreciate the film he had made and that although he is happy doing what he is doing, he would be only too happy to once again try his hand at filmmaking. But for now, he still left us with a prime exploitation thriller that still entertains nearly 30 years later. Um, so that's that's why I wanted to read it, because uh, his story is, is very interesting from... Uh, a covert operations in the military, all the way to being the the VP of finance for CNET. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. This guy's uh, projection. Never mind being able to to do something that a lot of people would love to do, which is at least make one film that is is very highly um, regarded in cult circles and is also a technically fantastically made especially for the budget it had and the the time frame of 18 days never mind the fact that he had no permits and he just had to shoot on the run um and the thing that's curious about this film is that this film is very much reminiscent of 42nd street new york city grindhouse uh feel to it and when i say that i'm not talking about the story itself but the locations uh because this film since it was filmed actually in Los Angeles, it had to um, basically do um, um, like if it was going to do guerrilla style stuff, the best place to do it is places that would be a bit odd to, to or, or not as noticeable. So what he did was this hammer guy he 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 went and filmed basically in L.A.'s version of 42nd Street. So where the prostitutes, the pimps, the grindhouses, the the nudie bars, the sex shops, all that stuff, th that's where he filmed the film. So a very gritty and dirty uh, feel to it, similar to a lot of the films from, that we see that take place in 70s and 60s and 80s New York City, like Taxi Driver. So it, it has that going for it. Um, uh, also, um, how he, he stated in that little bio how he would love to stay in film production uh, and done film for his career. Uh, a lot of these directors are like that. A lot of these um, horror film directors, indie film directors that do two, three, four films, or in this case one film, um, have to move on because they either get ripped off by um, the production companies that release the film that have the uh, contracts with the theaters or um, just can't get anything off the ground because they just don't have the backing. I mean, for every um, guy that lucks out and does the, you know, Kong Skull Island, there's dozens that, that never do anything. So, that yeah, there, here's a guy that had some talent, had a really good film that came out and just couldn't get anything else done uh, for a number of reasons. And survive he switched professions where he could he knew he could do good which was becoming a, pr a pretty successful uh, cfo uh mvp of some high-tech corporations that are a multi-million and billion dollar billion dollar companies so uh, that's pretty impressive um now <clears throat> i want to talk about um the lead actor too now uh this is a guy named um uh, nicholas worth uh, this guy is is uh of importance for the fact what he does in this film uh, i don't know much about him 
I, um, again, you know, this is this is from the 80s, 1980. So we're talking 37 years ago. God, that's I mean, 1980 seems like it was yesterday. And um, so obviously, first of all, he's passed away. So, uh, he died in I think his early 70s. Uh, but second of all, 37 years ago, you know, say he was he was um, 40 at the time. I'm just throwing that out. Um, Oh, actually, here it is. Yeah, he's, he was 43. Uh, so, if he's 43. Now, if he was still alive today, you know, he he would be retired or or, or playing minor roles anyway. But um, he, he was a character actor, um, and he 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 did a number of TV things. He was on X Files, for example, uh, as a, a you know a, a, one of their episodes. Um, he was on. Uh, uh, a television show called Tarzan: The Epic Adventures from 1996. Um, he has a huge filmography in the sense that he was dozens and dozens of guest appearances on television, from Stasky and Hutch uh, to Beretta. Um, you know, so so I mean, he was in a lot of stuff. Um, it was curious. He, he does, actually he has a lot of uncredited performances too. Uh, in the 70s, uh, some pretty important films like uh, the Michael Douglas, Robin Cook written film Coma, uh, and then Terminal Man, which was a, a great book by uh, Michael Crichton that was made into a movie. Um, but his career, I mean, he's an interesting looking guy because he, he's, he's one of those barrel chested big guys, so he's not um, a thin guy or a muscle guy, but he's, he's like a, a Mexican wrestler. He looks like that. Uh, the ones that you know wear the the masks, so obviously he 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 was he was going to be stuck into play heavy roles anyway, and uh, character actor and he wasn't going to be a star, but he was able to show that that a lot that you know a lot of these people who aren't you know the Brad Pitts or the Tom Cruises or whatnot or Matt Damon's um, that get roles that can really act. Um, and and they really do well, and and you know you get your John Saxons and whatnot who make uh, get are even lucky enough to get lead roles in, in B films. Uh, some don't, and this guy here, he's he didn't he didn't really uh, he was really just a character actor and played the heavy, you know, as a gangster or whatever. But here he was lucky enough to get a role where he could star, and he, and this film is his. I mean he he is really good in this film um now the the film is curiosity because what you got is you got him who's uh, a very disturbed person who has to kill woman for some reason i won't explain why i mean this is a film that you should just watch and, and figure out what's going on um and then and then he has to he feels guilty after um, when he and and there's, there's various reasons you'll figure out when you see the film, um, and and the thing is is that then you have this this uh, psychiatrist, one of those self-help gurus that have a radio call-in show that get all these you know cranks that call in and and you know you, a lot of people college kids would just laugh and go like oh, listen we gotta watch listen to the show because the idiots that call the show well it's one of those type of things and um um he calls in and he talks about his murders every so often and w one case he actually does the murder on the phone um 
basically um the girl he's with is high and he gets her to call and 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 then yeah he takes over and gets the phone picks up the phone and you know does a terrible thing and um and then it's pretty scary too because he gets how he gets into um the girls because he pretends he's a he is a photographer and he's a good photographer but he's a psycho too and so being in la you have a lot of actresses or a woman who want to become actresses and so he was able to get a lot of victims pretty easy and pretty quick because if you're a pretty good photographer and uh, you have a lot of folks in the city who need to get um, a portfolio to try to get roles. He, you know, this is this is a hunting ground for a type of guy like him. Um, and and so you have him going on, and you get these these murders with the same mo, and then you get this guy who's calling this psychiatrist, this woman psychiatrist, and then what you have is you have these cops, these two cops that are doing their investigation and um some people say that the cops are one of the weakest parts of the film um but i i would dis disagree completely i th i think that the two cops um especially the the supporting cop are really good because you got um um what it is is, is you have the two of them they play off each other and they're kind of sarcastic with the people that they meet never mind the people they interview and the people that they have to investigate never mind they, they're sarcastic with each other so there's a little bit of comic relief without going over the top um for example there's a scene where they go to this um um what the hell do they call these places um not bathhouses but a massage parlors i guess is what they're called and and really they're just fronts for for escorts and um there's, there's a, basically what happens is a victim is a, a prostitute, and the rumor is is the pimp has something to do with with this massage parlor. So the cops go there, and there's a funny there's some funny funny scenes there that that's kind of a comic relief without going over the top. Uh, so so as a as a um, director, um, the, the the this this guy um, Robert Hammer. Never mind the fact that Michael, this, he bought the story um, that I mentioned during his bio called um, Nightline, written by a guy named uh, Michael Curtis. Um, so he, he, he and this guy, Michael Castle, took this story by Michael Curtis and wrote the screenplay. And, and so you have him, this guy, he's a one-time director, and... He, he sure he wrote some minor screenplays for TV and and did documentaries and stuff like that. So he had a pretty cool life, you know, hanging out with Crosby, Stills and Nash, and so forth too. But so he, as a screenwriter and a director, one time, real basically for for a feature length film, he hits it out of the ballpark because he he has all the right beats. Um, so I would recommend the film for sure. Now the question is, should you get the the um out of now not out of print because you can still buy it it's still what it is is they still have a thousand copies or whatever by scorpion releasing or should you buy the vinegar syndrome version which is the brand new one and that's one is out now too uh now um the vinegar syndrome i think is about 
and the Scorpion releasing is actually, believe it or not, is dropped to $9.99 for half half the price because that used to be a, a $20 to $25 disc before Vinegar Syndrome's uh, version came out. Um, the question is, which do you go with? Um, I, I, honestly, I have to state that the Scorpion releasing version is pretty damn good. Uh, the, the quality is excellent, and the extras are okay. Um, so if you go with it, and if that was the only one that was there and the vintage syndrome never came out, it's it's still a good copy. So if you have that or you want to get that, it's it's worth it. And especially now, you can get it for $9.99 off of um, the Code Red website because, uh, again, Code Red and uh, Scorpion Releasing, they're separate companies, but one is owned by one brother and the other is owned by the other brother. So you know, they're obviously family, so they, they sell each other stuff. Uh, so you can get it for $9.99 on um, the Code Red website. But the Vinegar Syndrome edition, which just came out, I have to state, is, is definitely a better version. And nothing against Scorpion releasing, because their version is fine. Uh, and it's a, they're a good company. I like them. Uh, but the Vinegar Syndrome, you have to give credit for their new release because not only is it 4k so it's a better just i mean the 2k is damn good anyway but the 4k obviously this is the best you're ever going to see it is, is what i'm saying at least right now so vinegar syndrome has the, the best copy of the film out but the thing that's important about this even though they do have a really good interview with uh nicholas worth who also is has been interviewed on the the disc by scorpion release and the thing that's really good about this this release here uh, by Vinegar Syndrome is specifically they have the audio commentary with Robert Hammer, who's led a magnificently interesting life as a documentarian for Steve Miller Band and Crosby, Stills and Nash. So I mean, he was hanging out with those guys to be able to make a film like this. Uh, a really good slasher film with a interesting subtext because it's not just a slasher film, but it has that really cool subtext. And then to go on to become the the VP of finance for a company like CNET, never mind the CFO for various other tech companies. I mean, this guy's life is it's just unbelievable. So the commentary, just to hear this guy's commentary, um, that alone is probably worth you to spend the extra money and get the brand new 4k transfer of the movie by vinegar syndrome um because to just to be able to hear the story uh from robert hammer himself um is, is enough to, to spend the extra few bucks in my opinion but you i can't go wrong if you do buy um the scorpion releasing version um so that's uh don't answer the phone um, 1980 slasher film in the more gritty style of slashers um, and it's a really good film high recommend uh, blood and boobs galore uh, so it's got everything you want for a midnight film the sleaze the nudity the the blood and then it has really cool set pieces of a 1980 LA um, grimy dirty uh, set pieces of the of the real streets and there's nothing that's cool on the vinegar syndrome disc is they have a um uh, and i didn't mention it when, when i uh, read the th the 
the special features, and, and oddly it doesn't list it on the back, but I watched it, was um, they go to have like a five-minute scene where they show then and now of, um, of the set. So you can see what something looked like in 1980, and then they show you the, the same... Um, the same today, what what it looks like today. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And it actually, it may not be its own distinct um, uh, extra on the disc. It may be incorporated in one of the other um, uh, extras. But it, but it's there. And and I thought that was pretty cool to see the difference between uh, LA 1980 grimy, slimy pimps and hookers to 19, uh, or I should say 2017. LA with its clean, pristine um, Hollywood feel. So, uh, um, either way, uh, don't answer the phone by a very interesting uh, one time director. I uh, highly recommend uh, if you like slashes, especially gritty ones, this one is for you. Okay, the film I am going to review is a film called We Are the Flesh. Uh, this is actually a very br new film, uh, actually brand new, in the sense, uh, for example, it is a production from 2016, but uh, didn't get a general release, uh, at least in the United States, until 2017, January. Um, what it was, it was doing a festival circuits prior to that. It actually made its debut uh, February 2nd in 2016 at a, a, a festival called uh, International Film Festival Rotterdam. Uh, so that, that would be um, uh, uh, the Netherlands. And um, it got well received there. Uh, it's an interesting thing because um, Rotten Tomatoes actually uh, has a pretty good number of reviews for it. Uh, and it has a 74% good reviews, and it actually um, has been reviewed by a lot of big critics uh, from the Los Angeles Times to Variety to the Village Voice to the New York Times. Um, so it, it's done uh, the rounds. Uh, Hollywood Reporter is another one. Uh, so it has done uh, the rounds, um, or at least has been noted by... Um, major newspaper publications and also art house uh, magazines and crit critics. Um, the reason I'm, I'm doing such a new film, uh, because it was actually released, uh, though in the States, uh, to limited theatrical release in January of 2017, it was actually released to disc uh, the same month. Um, uh, but uh, the reason I'm, I'm doing it is because it was released by Arrow Video. Uh, Arrow Video does uh, dozens and dozens of um, uh, genre films from the 70s and 80s and 60s and whatnot that are very much cult films, uh, B films and whatnot, and uh, they were able to get their hands on this film, uh, and I'm not sure how they were able to, um, but I could see why maybe. Uh, because of uh, the nature of the film. Uh, we Are the Flesh is actually a co-Mexican-French production, um, but um, besides the money uh, given to 
the film or the producers from France that gave money for the film. It's generally a Mexican film uh, through and through because of where it's filmed and who stars in it and so forth. Uh, the film was a um, uh, directed by what I think is first-time director of at least a full his full-length feature a guy named Emiliano Roca Minter. Um, so he hasn't done anything much. So there's not really much background I can give. Uh, I do know that he's definitely a little out there. Uh, he does have a interview on the disc uh, where he's a bit um, uh, bohemian, uh, basically wearing sunglasses and, and how he answers his questions and whatnot. Um, never mind the, the film itself. Uh, the film is definitely... Um, Reminds me of something like a Gaspar Noah film, uh, folks who, or Gaspar Noe, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but the, the French director uh, who does some very odd, extreme, surreal films um, such as uh, Irreversible and Enter the Void. Uh, this film does most certainly remind me of those films, specifically Enter the Void by Gaspar Noe. Um, the film uh, has... Um, a screenwriter of simply the director, so it's written and directed by the same folk. Um, there's three actors, only one of them is is somewhat known. Um, I don't know if he's well known outside of his home country, but um, he's definitely uh, fairly well known in Mexico. His name is Noah Hernandez. Um, you could argue he's the lead, but to be honest, there's really three leads in the film. Uh, probably of equal value to the film, and he would be uh, one of the three. Uh, he's done a lot of television work and a lot of uh, films, uh, also been uh, nominated for awards uh, called the Aerial Award, uh, which is basically um, the Mexican Academy of the Arts, uh, and he's been nominated multiple times for awards um, and and uh, so forth by the Mexican uh, Academy, which uh, is called the Aerial Awards. Uh, the other two leads are um, actors um, that are new. They're not well known. They're 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 this is basically their debut in a sense. And I believe they were found uh, through a process on Facebook where the director posted on Facebook that he was making a film and he needed actors and uh, a lot of directors do this for example Brian Williams and Scott Shermer um, do that a lot uh, the guy that did uh, th those are the guys that did uh, Harvest Lake and Found um, and then the guys that did Death Scorch Service uh, for example uh, um, that would be uh, director Sean Donahue uh, they've done the same thing where they post on Facebook and ask for uh, people to come in and, and uh, read and uh, this guy did the same. And these two young actors from uh, uh, Mexico uh, saw it, came in, and uh, they won the roles. Um, and their names are, uh, the, the woman is Maria Evoli, and the man, or, or young guy, they, they're both in their 20s, uh, the, his name is Diego Gamaliel. Um, and uh, those are the other two leads. There's a couple other people in the film um, that aren't really um, leads. They, they have some supporting roles, but this is really a three-piece film. Uh, yet there is one other woman in the film, I must say, um, that has a, a interesting part that that um, 
uh, she, she should get credit for her courage. Uh, and uh, if I can find her name, I'll I'll, I'll uh, give it. But uh, it's um, I can't remember it offhand. Um, but I, th I think her name is uh, Maria Sid, uh, C I D. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about her in a second too, when when uh, I give a, a little roundup of the film. Uh, but this is a post-apocalyptic film, uh, so uh, it's I guess it, you could say that it's a science science fiction type film, even though there's no science like lasers or robots or spaceships or anything like that. But because it's post-apocalyptic, um, it would be considered a science fiction film and therefore a genre film. Um, but it also has a lot of psychedelic weirdness to it, uh, very artsy-fartsy. Um, I haven't seen the film um, Beyond the Black Rainbow, I think it's called, but um, a lot of people have, uh, have um, I guess, compared it to that, and that being the case, Beyond the Black Rainbow, that being the case, that will determine whether or not you would like this film, because, uh, at least for the plot, because it is a very odd film and I know a lot of people uh, either loved or hate hated the film Beyond the Black Rainbow and I guess people you could say that also for Enter the Void um, as well um, which was the Gaspar No film a lot of people either loved it or hated it uh, this film here um, I think it's going to get that same uh, note uh, but um, one thing that, that will attract people to it, if they even know that it exists, uh, is simply for the fact that it's post-apocalyptic and, and there's a huge fan base, as we all know, that love post-apocalyptic films, and not just zombie ones, but any type of post-apocalyptic film. Uh, a lot of people love that stuff. Um, and th this is most certainly in that category, if a bit different. Uh, there is no uh, zombies in there, and this isn't like a Mad Max either. Um, but uh, let, me, let me give you the back jacket of uh, the Arrow release. Uh, once again, uh, Arrow is an English company, uh, boutique company. They release a lot of uh, good cult, uh, horror films, uh, many from uh, the U.S., uh, Britain, and uh, continental Europe. Uh, for example, some of the films they've done of note, um, people that may have know are, um, oh, they actually do even Japanese films for that matter. Um, actually, uh, the first uh, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, I uh, did a review of Doctor The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, so uh, that that's one of their releases. Uh, Contamination, it's a pretty cool science fiction film from uh, uh, Italy, kind of a uh, ripoff of um, Alien, in a sense. Uh, or at least one of the films that followed Alien, even though it doesn't really take place in space. Uh, that That's one of their releases. Uh, they released Sheba Baby, uh, the black exploitation film starring Pam Greer, uh, among dozens and dozens of others. Uh, I know a lot of folks love their company and think they're one of the best boutique companies. Um, and uh, though I'm not... Uh, I don't have many of their, their discs. Um, I do have to say they what they do release are, is fantastic. Um, now this is what it says on the back jacket of the film We Are the Flesh. And here we go. A visionary and bizarre slice of Mexican cinema, We Are the Flesh is an extraordinary and unsettling film experience. 
a sexually charged and nightmarish journey into an otherworldly dimension of carnal desire and excess, as well as a powerful allegory on the corrupting power of human desire. A young brother and sister roaming an apocalyptic city, which in, uh, it doesn't say here, but it is Mexico City. Um, that's where it was filmed, and also um, I believe it's mentioned a couple times in the film that it's post-apocalyptic Mexico City. Um, take refuge in the dilapidated lair of a strange hermit. He puts them to work building a bizarre cavernous structure where he acts out his insane and depraved fantasies. Trapped in this maddening womb-like world under his malign influence, they find themselves sinking into the realms of dark and forbidden behavior. Mixing the graphic, powerful imagery of a Gaspar Noah, oh, how about that? A Gaspar Noah film such as Love or Enter the Void, with the surreal, hallucinatory impact of Alessandro Jodorowsky's films, We Are the Flesh is a bizarre, psychedelic head trip, mixing intense, outrageously explicit imagery with a profound allegory on the nature of existence, to make this an unforgettable, boundary-pushing experience unlike anything you've ever seen. Uh, a lot of extras on this. Um, there's uh, interviews with all three leads and the director. Each are uh, anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes or so. Um, there's a video essay by the critic uh, Virginie Salavi. Uh, two short films by the director, Emiliano Roca Minter. So uh, some of the films that uh, he used to... Uh, um, get the money to produce this he used them as as i guess um part of his resume uh those are called dentro and video home i haven't watched either yet uh the theatrical trailers on the disc uh there's a still gallery and uh this disc actually has a reversible sleeve featuring original and newly commissioned artwork for the film um so um that's pretty much the basic uh, the linear notes inside is a little booklet that's pretty cool and it tells a lot about the film um, and it's highly uh, recommended um, if if you like to read backgrounds about it. And and honestly, this film is so bizarre that any information you can get about it after you watch it is worth uh, checking out. If um, if if you're confused uh, by a film, this is definitely a film that could cause it. Uh, there is some exceptions, like like Horsehead, the French. Uh, English language French horror film uh, from about eight, two years ago that uh, Dark Discussions Podcast did a, a review and critique on. Um, it was very confusing, though some folks like co-host Eric were immediately able to figure it out. This is a film like that where not everybody's going to figure it out. And I, I honestly have to say I am not quite sure uh, what was being said, or meaning the subtext uh, for the film. Um, now, um, the reason this film is, I guess, controversial is because there's, uh, numerous scenes that cross the bounds of, uh, what would be normal, um, B-movie madness, um, at, at, at least, at least for, um, the general public. Um, and let me explain why. I mean, they, they, you do have, you do have your violences. This is absolutely, uh, horrendously graphic scene uh, of a killing of, of uh, somebody. Um, so, so it does have its blood, and it does have its, its boobs and, and so forth, because it's the, uh, 
you get full frontal nudity of both uh, male and female leads of, of all three characters. Um, and, and the and the violence, the, the death scene that I just mentioned is, is, is definitely intense. One of the most intense you'll, you'll see um, in, at least in the past 12 months of cinema. Uh, but the thing that I think pushes this film further and make and then it therefore throws it into the art house film or like Gaspar Noe or Lars von Trier film is uh, there is some graphic sex in the film just as, as Gaspar Noe and Lars von Trier films do. So if you're offended by uh, Lars von Trier's last couple of films like Antichrist or or um, uh, Nymphomaniac part one and two or if you're offended by Irreversible or um, Love, or even Enter the Void by Gaspar Noe, uh, then this film probably wouldn't work for you because of that, uh, the graphic sex, because um, there there is um, very a couple close-ups of genitalia, both male and female, as well as uh, actual um, hard sex, such as um, oral and um, intercourse. Um, now, uh, to get past that and get back to the, the plot itself, um, so yeah, basically you have this guy, this uh, older guy, uh, probably in his 40s, 50s, um, but you can't really tell because he's kind of grimy. You know, there's obviously apocalyptic, uh, you're not going to be taking baths that much, and, and you're going to have beards and all that stuff. Uh, but he's making um, uh, stuff... Uh, I forget exactly what it was, but I think it was alcohol or or, or uh, ga um, getting gas or something. And and, the, and this scene lasts for a good seven minutes, and so there's no talking even. And uh, and it, yet it's ingenious. I, I got to give credit. And and what happens is, yeah, it's it's alcohol. He's basically making alcohol, and I think he gets tanked. He passes out. And again, I'm being a little. Not just vague, but a little confused because, like I said, this is very interesting, psychedelic kind of sort of film. Um, these two siblings, a brother and a sister, make it to um, this building, and it could be anything from um, an office building to a factory to a hospital to a sanitarium. You know, it's, it's basically some sort of building, office slash hospital type building. Um, my guess it was a um, um, an office building, it could, but heck, it could have been a, a school. And um, they find this guy passed out, and um, they were thinking to leave, but they decide to stay. He, he wakes up, and he allows them to stay uh, with a couple conditions. Basically, the main condition. Uh, I'll give you the two main conditions. Uh, well, there's, there's more than two, but I'll give the two without that aren't spoilers. One is he basically needs them to help him build uh, a structure within one of the rooms. Uh, it's almost like a uh, a room within a room. Um, this and and it kind of symbolizes. Uh, it turns out to be like a symbol of of like the womb. Uh, so this is where it's going. If if you can get get my drift. Um, and then the other thing is is that he has to lock them in a room at night because he doesn't want to. Uh, get mugged, murdered, or have them sneak out stealing his things. Uh, and so they agree to both of those. And then eventually there's a couple other things he suggests that um, is the beginning of where um, 
I guess a corruption begins uh, in a sense, and they aren't necessarily um, the good folk that they appear to be at the beginning. And when I say not good folk, I don't necessarily mean evil, but um, they become a little um, immoral in a sense. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. I don't want to give up to give too much because these are the more uh, obvious and under things you'll understand when you're watching it versus all the subtext that I just went over my head. Um, but either way, there's uh, uh, some graphic nudity and sex, and, and that includes uh, the two young actors that star in the film, um, and even, even the, the older guy, uh, some interesting acts. But then there's uh, a couple of people that suddenly appear in the film later, uh, including... Um, that actress Maria Sid that I mentioned that she gets involved and does a lot of things that are um, pretty explicit as well and then um, there's a, a major death scene and I won't say who it is or or anything because I don't want to give away whether it's one of the leads or not but there is some interesting surreal moments or maybe even supernatural moments uh, because it appears that someone dies and most certainly do die and yet they come back in a sense, so is it just symbolism for this film to get to A to Z, or is it like real supernatural scary film or science fiction film? And uh, I won't talk about that either because I don't want to give away stuff. Um, but um, the, now, the, I guess you want to really hear what I have to say, whether whether the film's good or not, or, or whether I liked it or not. And uh, yeah, why don't we discuss that? Well. Um, as an art house film, um, I, I guess a lot of folks could like it, um, because it is definitely an art house genre picture, uh, science fiction picture, or, and with horrific elements as well. Um, so if you like art house, horror, sci-fi, drama, this, this could work for you. Um, the apocalyptic feel is pretty cool. Uh, it's definitely... Uh, bombed out building type thing. We don't know why the apocalypse happens, uh, so it's it's an unnamed thing. Whether it was war or famine or whatnot, um, is is it? Uh, I if you just like straight apocalyptic or sci-fi films or horror films, not necessarily a film for you um, because it is very bizarre. And it's more um, a film of symbolism and subtext than it is a straight narr narrative. Um, so that may make it a film that you will not want to see. Uh, B-movie madness, it has it all. I mean, like I said, there's, there's an unbelievable murder. There's um, uh, plenty of boobs. Um, th oh, like I said, there's... there's um, sex scenes and, and not just softcore uh, so it's got all that so if you if you like midnight movies this is a great one no doubt about it um, but again because it's a surreal picture with an odd narrative which may make you not even know what happens because of the odd things that do happen in the film um, I can't necessarily say it's for everybody however I would recommend people see it because I thought it was a pretty good film 
it's definitely a film I have to rewatch because I still got to figure out uh, or try to decipher it, and I want to decipher it. Uh, so it left me wanting to see it again, which is a really good thing. Um, and not just because of the, the blood and boobs, uh, even though those are good, believe me. Um, so I, I would recommend it. Um, just note that if you go in, don't expect a straight linear story after the midpoint of the film, because at the midpoint of the film, everything changes. Um, and that will determine whether or not this film is f for you. Though it still has some good uh, cult and midnight movie stuff in the second half of the film. And that's where most of that occurs. So even if the second half doesn't work as a story for you, it will work as a midnight cult uh, psychotronic uh, film for you. So uh, it does have... Uh, those elements so it's a it's an interesting film because the first half is definitely um a straightforward good post-apocalyptic film and the second half is complete mayhem um psychotronic all the way uh so that that's all i can really say uh about the film uh it is subtitled so it's not a uh english language film it's in spanish um the, I did watch uh, some of the interviews. Um, all the interviews are in Spanish except for the lead actress. She actually uh, had, does her interview on camera uh, in English. And uh, she speaks perfect English, even though she, uh, that's her second language. Um, so I wish there was a commentary because it would be awesome to hear um, the actors and or director slash screenwriter talk about the film as it's going uh, along but uh, uh, unfortunately that is not the case so uh, if you're going to try to figure this film out you're going to have to do your research um, and that's what I'm going to do I'm going to rewatch the film and then I'm going to try to find websites and, and see their opinions of what uh, was trying to happen or what was being said uh, in the film uh, so either way, it's it's, it's definitely a, a good talking piece film, uh, even if it's not a film for you. Uh, so that's uh, We Are the Flesh, a uh, brand new release by Arrow Blu-ray, um, and it is uh, a brand new film, also one of the newer films in uh, um, the Psychotronic uh, Review uh, podcast that I'm doing. Uh, but uh, I'll be throwing in other new films too but uh this is the first one um and the reason i chose it because i just watched it and it uh is an arrow um release so uh uh we are the flesh okay this review here is for a 1975 thriller, uh, but actually it's under the sub-genre of what folks would call blacks exploitation. Um, but uh, before we explain what any of that is, uh, let me give you the title of this film and uh, some of the other information. Uh, the film is actually called The Black Gestapo. Uh, it actually sounds um, fairly offensive for a uh, name of a film, or, or at least bizarre. Uh, it actually had another title 
um, ghetto warriors, which you could argue is, is as offensive in a sense. But um, if folks who know the black exploitation filmography, um, it's it's fairly um, I don't know how to explain it, but um, f some folks may have thought it to be offensive, but in reality, uh, many folks thought it was um, actually a good thing because it gave a lot of African-American and Caribbean-American actors uh, roles they otherwise wouldn't have. And you could argue was um, the first films uh, of any era that actually um, gave the majority of the cast, uh, or at least the leading roles, to African or Caribbean-American actors, which otherwise they um, would would sparingly get, especially back in uh, the 60s and the heyday of black exploitation, which was uh, the 1970s. Um, some of the major stars from the black exploitation era include Pam Greer, who has actually um, come out and crossed over to other films uh, recently, including um, Quentin Tarantino's uh, film um, and a, a John Carpenter film. Uh, so a lot, lot of folks got their start there, and uh, many of them, including uh, one person in the film, Black Gestapo, uh, became a, a highly prolific television actor and also happened to be an African-American actor as well. Um, let me uh, read the, the back jacket of uh, this film, uh, The Black Gestapo. Um, and uh, this is a Code Red release. And uh, Code Red is a company owned by a guy named Bill Olson. And I'm assuming he is from Norway because he has done commentaries, um, not necessarily the main person, but the person that asks questions and, and talks to um, directors and actors on the commentaries and gets them to point out things. And uh, it appears he has a, a accent. So I'm assuming um, he, he, he was born over in Europe. Uh, he does have a brother. Um, uh, I forget I forget the, the man's name. Walt Olson, I think, maybe, who um, owns Scorpion Releasing. Uh, so uh, both brothers own uh, boutique labels and release numerous films of uh, high quality, um, high quality in um, uh, basically uh, HD and uh, 2K scans and, and things of that nature. Uh, not necessarily the films, because obviously a lot of these boutique labels release what um, many folks would call junk films, but um, Scorpion releasing and Code Red have released numerous films of note and some really damn good ones in, in most people's opinions, uh, like uh, the Linda Blair film Savage Streets, uh, some Roger Corman films like um, uh, Sorority House Massacre and uh, various other films. Uh, this one here um, is actually uh, directed by a guy named uh, Lee Frost, and uh, Lee Frost is uh, the reason why I decided to finally see this film. Um, I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of uh, this subgenre, but uh, there's a number of films that are pretty damn good, um, and Lee Frost, um, who's actually a Caucasian, 
um, because a lot of folks who actually wrote, uh, wrote directed, and produced black exploitation films were uh, Caucasians, uh, even though um, the the leads and all the roles of significance were um, Caribbean or black or African Americans. Um, Lee Frost um, got his start back in uh, the late 50s or at least the early 60s uh, doing a number of thrillers and um, uh, cult films. Um, he actually has some damn good films that have been released and remastered by such companies as Something Weird Video. Um, he did uh, a film called The Defilers, The Animal, and The Pickup, which are all really good thrillers. Um, pretty gritty. Um, surprisingly, they were made in the the 60s because they feel more like 1970s films, even though they're all black and white. Um, and those films are pretty damn good. Maybe topics in a future Halloween boutique psychotronic reviews. Uh, but um, as a result, because he did those films, and I've seen those films and have uh, copies of them. Uh, I've discovered that he actually did The Black Gestapo. It was a film that uh, Code Red uh, remastered, and I uh, kind of ignored it um, only until recently when I discovered that Lee Frost actually directed it. Um, one of the things that Lee Frost is also well known for is uh, some screenwriting, uh, because he, he did write a lot of his uh, own screenplays with an I, another guy named Wes Bishop. And uh, the two of them wrote numerous uh, films together um, th with different producers. Um, but uh, their most famous uh, film, at least to the general uh, non-cult film fan, would probably be the television film um, entitled um, Race with the Devil. Uh, Race with the Devil, uh, folks may know, is uh, the pretty big, well-known film from 1975 that Peter Fonder starred in, and it was uh, a TV of the week, um, and it was a really good movie. Uh, it is actually now remastered, and it can be purchased anywhere on um, Amazon and so forth, and it's a high recommend. Um, it's uh, basically, I saw it actually when, when, it, when I was a kid, believe it or not, and um, it's basically a couple's on a trip uh, in an RV, and they see some sort of satanic or devil-worshipping thing out in, like, a field, and then they're chased um, to cover up by um, this cult. And so it's a race against the devil, in a sense, race with the devil. Um, and it, there may or may not be a supernatural twist. I won't sp spoil that film. But uh, Lee Frost actually was going to direct the film, and for some reason that fell through. Um, don't know why. Couldn't find much information on why, uh, whether it's because he did some gritty um, exploitation films in the 60s, such as The Defilers, uh, The Pickup, and The Animal, as well as a couple of nudie cuties, such as House on Bear Mountain and Surf Tide 77. Uh, I don't know. Uh, though he, he did... Uh, do by this time um, had already worked with some major actors, even if they were at their uh, end of their career or not. But uh, he he did a film uh, called The Thing with Two Heads, 
which uh, starred actually Ray Milland. Uh, Ray Milland is the Academy Award uh, actor for The Lost Weekend and has been in a number of great films, including uh, Dial M for Murder and so forth. So uh, Lee Frost at least was working with some uh, A talent in... 1972, only three years prior to uh, this film and prior to um, The Race with the Devil. Um, so I, I just don't know. It could have been anything from contract negotiations or whatnot. But either way, they decided to use his script for uh, The Race with the Devil, uh, st uh, starring Henry Fonda. Um, other films Lee Frost has done, I haven't seen uh, most of his work, unfortunately. Um, but a lot of these films I've heard of and are, are well familiar with their titles. Um, for example, um, besides the ones I've named, uh, he did um, the very first, or arguably one of the very first, exploitation films, Love Camp 7, uh, which has uh, just been re-released on Blu-ray, uh, fully remastered by Blue Underground. It just came out in January of 2017. Um, and then he did um, The Chain Gang Woman, which is a pretty well-known film, Chrome and Hot Leather, the uh, bike exploitation film, uh, Zero In and Scream, which is a fairly uh, well-known title. Um, he did Police Woman, which actually is available on disc as well. Um, I think it's out of print, but you can still find copies for under 10 bucks and, and a lot of cult film fanatics think that's a pretty damn good film um and of course uh, the black gestapo dixie dynamite is another one that a lot of folks have heard of and uh his very last film from 1995 private obsession which is available on uh, amazon i've seen it there i haven't picked it up yet but um yeah, so he's done a, a lot of uh, notable films. Uh, he actually uh, passed away at the age of 71 in 2007. Um, not quite sure why, um, but um, e either way, uh, he's no longer with us, which is unfortunate because um, with all his films now reappearing, uh, I, I would not doubt that uh, he would have been someone to be of note for a commentary or interviews for a lot of these boutique labels. Uh, but uh, alas, he's he's no longer with us. Um, now uh, the film. Let, let me let me read the back jacket of the film um, and say for what Cold Red has uh, for the title, the Black Gestapo, 1975. General Ahmad, uh, played by Rod Perry, uh, TV SWAT, has started an inner city people's army to try and relieve the misery of the citizens of Watts. When the locals are put under increasing pressure by mafia thugs, Ahmad's second-in-command Colonel Koji, or Koja, uh, played by Charlie Robinson of TV's Night Court and the film Sugar Hill, asks for permission to start a protection squad to take more direct action. Ahmad fears this protection squad will just turn into a vigilante mob, and his prediction soon proves correct. Will Ahmad be able to wrest control back from the power-mad Koja, or will he be the mob's next victim? Throw away all those public domain bootlegs and watch this classic from the original camera negatives, completely remastered, uh, with a 2K uh, original camera negative, 
there's a um, extras for the disc are interviews with stars Charlie Robinson, Rod Perry, and Charles Howerton, and there's an audio commentary with um, the two leads in the film, um, Charlie Robinson and Rod Perry, and then of course um, the original trailer. Um, so that's pretty impressive right there, the, the um, audio commentary. I have not listened to that yet, but uh, it would be pr probably curious to uh, hear what they have to say, especially for them to to come out and do a boutique label uh, commentary. Um, now, uh, uh, what black exploitation is, because uh, I did throw that out, and as, as you can see, Lee Frost um, is one of the directors that had at least dabbled in it. Um, basically, uh, let me read, just go off and read the, uh, IMDB, or, or actually the wiki, the wiki, Wikipedia for black exploitation, because it's, it's pretty, pretty valid, uh, and this is what it says. Uh, it is an ethnic subgenre of exploitation film emerging in the United States during the early 1970s. Black exploitation films were originally made specifically for urban black audiences, but the genre's audience appeal soon broadened across racial and ethnic lines. The LA uh, National Association for Advancement of Color People, so the NAACP's uh, affiliate from Los Angeles, had an ex-film publicist uh, Junius Griffin coined the term from the words black and exploitation. Black exploitation films were the first to regularly feature soundtracks of funk and soul music in primarily black casts. Variety credited such films as Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song and a less radical Hollywood finance film Shaft, both released in 1971 with the invention of the black exploitation subgenre. Um, so um, that's pretty much what it sums up. Uh, a lot of stars came out of it, as you know. They even made uh, remade Shaft uh, with Samuel L. Jackson just a couple of years ago. Um, some of the the bigger name films. Let me let me throw out some names. You probably have heard of them. Uh, Cleopatra Jones, um, uh, Scream, Blackula Scream. Um, uh, any of the Pam Greer films, uh, such as uh, Foxy Brown and Friday Foster, Sheba Baby, uh, Coffee, um, uh, Sugar Hill, as I mentioned, T.N.T. Jackson uh, was just really released in a new um, uh, release by um, uh, one of the companies, the boutique companies. Uh, Dolomite is another well-known one. Um, uh, P.D. Wheatstraw uh, has just been released by uh, Vinegar Syndrome, for example. Um, Disco Godfather is kind of well-known. Um, Jackie Brown is a throwback. That's the one that Pam Greer stars in for Quentin Tarantino that I, I mentioned a bit earlier. So there's a couple of throwback ones or, or, or faux or pseudo exploitation films. Uh, Action Jackson was another one starring Kyle Weathers uh, from uh, 19, uh, no, I think it was in the year, but, but it was, I think, an 80s film. Uh, so, yeah, um, a lot of well-known stuff. Um, actually, uh, Code Red just re released an, another one a couple of uh, months ago called Lord Shango, which is a supernatural one. Um, so, a um, lot, lot of films. It was a huge genre. It lasted for a while. 
but unfortunately, eventually faded out with most um, drive-in films and and uh, grindhouse films uh, back in the day, and have been replaced by a lot of uh, what we see today from uh, VOD and directed videos and whatnot. Um, now, uh, a couple of things about this film here. Um, it stars, as I said, uh, basically two main actors. Um, the f first one, uh, or the lead, is a guy named Rod Perry. Not too familiar with him. Uh, it did say that he was on a TV show called SWAT, uh, but I, I don't think that really lasted that long. Uh, otherwise, um, he did a lot of television appearances uh, as as the quote-unquote special guests, things of that nature. Um, he was in a film called The Black Godfather, which was also a uh, another fairly well-known um, film from uh, the black exploitation era. Uh, but the the big actor uh, in the film, you can argue, is um, Charles Robinson. And uh, Charles Robinson uh, was on the television show Night Court uh, from 1984 to 1992. It was basically a, um, a show, a sitcom, that takes place in a, a court. Um, so bailiffs and, and lawyers and th things of that nation, nature, but but all in uh, jest. Uh, John Larroquette was probably the, the biggest name from that television show, uh, probably most known in genre circles as the voiceover in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, but uh, other folks of uh, note in the show are um, uh, the guy that played Bull. Um, I, I forget his name, but uh, he's been in a number of genre roles recently um, in, in modern um, uh, VOD horror films, um, basically. Uh, but uh, Charles Robinson was actually on the show for what I think was uh, eight years if, or nine years, uh, plus uh, basically the 180 episodes, which is, uh, I think, the third longest or, or the fourth longest of all the actors on the show, so he was basically there from the beginning to the end, um, and so he was a fairly well-known, well-recognized um, television actor uh, that um, not necessarily um, got to spin off to doing it because of this film here, Black Gestapo, because that was seven years prior, but uh, basically um, his success um, was mostly in, in television as a pretty big actor. Uh, back in the 80s and early 90s. Um, another interesting person of note that stars in this film, um, though, I, 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 let me rephrase that, not, not a star, but, but definitely uh, has a pretty decent role um, as the girlfriend of um, uh, the, the uh, Colonel Koji, or the second-in-command of the Black Gestapo, um, played by Charles Robinson, is um, the sexploitation and cult actress Ushi Degard, who actually uh, folks may know her from uh, a lot of Russ Meyer films, uh, but she also did a number of other uh, exploitation films in the past, uh, including uh, roles in Ilsa Harem, Keeper of the um, Oil Sheiks, uh, but she was also in uh, CB Hustlers, which is a, a pretty good uh, or I, I, actually, I can't say it's pretty good because I haven't seen it, but it's pretty well-known cult film by uh, director Stu Seagal, who, who did a number of uh, really good uh, 1970s cult films, um, including 
Drive-In Massacre, which actually just uh, came out as a remastering. Uh, so with with Drive-In Massacre just now recently coming out and being remastered by Severin, I think, uh, which is, or Synapse, uh, I think it was Severin, actually. It's coming out in a month or two. Uh, maybe CB Hustlers will uh, come out where actually Uzi Degard actually has a starring role. But you can find uh, a copy of it right now on Amazon. I don't know uh, the good quality of it, if it's any good or not. Uh, but either way, um, she starred in a number of uh, Something Weird releases as well, including uh, The Black Alley Cats, which is a pretty good film, actually. Um, she has a, um uncredited role, role on uh, Blood Sabbath, which is a Diane Thorne film. Uh, she was in Prison Girls, which uh, is actually a damn good uh, woman in prison film, though unfortunately the only copy you can get right now is... Um, um, fairly, um, uh, well, an unrema uh, non-remastered copy. So it's watchable, but obviously it's not uh, the 2K quality that people hope for from a boutique label. But uh, you can get it for under 10 bucks. It's a pretty good film. Uh, she's done um, uh, some of the Something Weird videos that she's done, uh, or releases, I should say, are... The, the Cutthroats, uh, actually, I'm sorry, Cutthroats is actually a Vinegar Syndrome release, and uh, so she has a role in that, and uh, that's a pretty good World War II sexploitation type film. She was in um, Sandra, The Making of a Woman, which is a Something Weird release. She was in The Godson, uh, The Big Snatch, uh, both are Something Weird. Big, the Big Snatch is a high recommend, that's a really good one. Um, uh, the Toy Box. Uh, she has a, a role in that, which is uh, something weird. I believe it's out of print, though. I, I do have a copy of that, and I haven't watched it yet. Um, the Goddaughter, and uh, a number of other films. Uh, well, actually, one of her uh, more, uh, well, I, I don't know if well-known, but more um, recent releases is uh, a remastering of The Last Step Down, which is a film by Redemption Video, another boutique label. So uh, for folks who want to see her uh, can t check that out. But also you can uh, check out some of the Russ Meyer films, uh, including, I think, Super Fiction, Fixins, and a couple of others. And that's where she's probably most well-known by um, non-cult film fans. Um, and her role here is, is fairly small, if not memorable. Um, now, th this film here is a curious film because basically what it is is that you have this... This group of uh, what it looks like Irish mobsters in um, L.A. And um, what they do is they um, are basically doing racketeering in the section of L.A. called Watts, which at this time um, in the 70s was um, a lot of ethnic turmoil um, due to race relations and things of that nature where uh, there was a, a, something that's probably well known. Uh, at least in the States, is uh, the Watts riots that occurred back in the 70s. Uh, but either way, it was a, a large section of the um, African-American community that um, was very prominent in, um, if not civil rights, at least in um, um, political voice. And uh, so either way, you have this, this Irish mob, oddly led by... Um, Lee Frost, he has a cameo as, I guess, the the, the godfather, the, the Irish mob godfather, as um, 
a uh, mobster that that's basically doing racketeering forcing uh, convenience store owners uh, liquor store owners uh, people like that to basically give him money for protection quote unquote protection um, and so his goons go out and they attack people and whatnot and then what happens is is that um, uh, one of the major characters sister um, gets uh, unfortunately raped by a couple of these Irish mob goons and that is when um, Koja decides to take things in his own hands without um, without Ahmad's um, blessing and so that's where you have the the fight between um, the Irish mob and then the internal struggles of what is the Black Gestapo and, and the Black Gestapo actually is I guess similar to um, uh, or at least they're trying to portray it as a Black Panthers uh, even though they address more like um, the Guardian Angels uh, which is a, um, a peaceful uh, a civilian group in New York City that protects uh, citizens from muggings and whatnot and um uh but here they they dress similar to those folks though they're more like the black panthers which is uh, i guess a militarized group of um black folk who uh are just upset with uh what what the government and and uh non-african americans are doing to them um but the thing that happens it's interesting in this film is is that what always happens and it's 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 good because it, it's it came out of, it wasn't expected uh basically you th think once they get rid of the irish mob that everything would be fine but what happens is is that koja's group decides to replace the irish mob so one bad group is replaced by another bad group so okay you're not going to pay the irish mob protection money anymore instead you're going to pay koja's group for protection money and so, as you can gather, um, okay, they look like heroes because they're freeing this neighborhood from the Irish mob, and yet what happens is, guess what, they become the new mob. Um, and, and that's that's where, where the film goes. And uh, I thought that was fairly original because I was expecting um, something completely different. I, th I was thinking it would be uh, black vigilantes against... Uh, the Irish mob or something of that nature so it, it tur could turn that I wasn't expecting um, and then of course you have the the uh, internal struggles between Ahmad and Koja because Ahmad wanted to get rid of the Irish mob but he didn't want to then replace them with his group as the new mob and so you, there you go you get your, your basically struggle um, for the film um, now um, is it a good film? Um, I, I think it really is. It, it's 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 a pretty pretty good thriller. Um, there's some shocking moments, um, humor, a little humor, uh, a lot of exploitation elements, uh, blood and boobs and such, and um, the the spin where you have one part of this this black Gestapo wanting to become the Gestapo in a sense with and then you have the other side which doesn't and um the reason why the whole thing starts is because of the the rape and it's interesting 
who that character is because the person that you would expect that would want vengeance isn't the one that does the vengeance and so that's there's a neat little twist there too and I'm trying to be as vague as possible because uh, it's probably worth checking out um, so I, I would definitely recommend it um, you, can, you can buy cheap versions of it on Amazon out of print versions or whatnot uh, as the back of the code red disk says the public domain versions are out there but um, this here is the fully uncut original directors uh, presentation in 2D looks brand new print it's just unbelievable um, it, it looks as good as any Hollywood film um, especially since this film you could argue uh, was an orphan in a sense because when a c companies went bankrupt the production companies went bankrupt the film just lands up sitting in the public domain or the prints get ruined or whatever um, but this one here uh, Bill Olson did an excellent job um, uh, fixing it, uh, getting it back to pristine condition. Um, now, where can you find a disc? Um, I don't think it's necessary. Th you can get it through Amazon. It's an interesting thing. I, I'm not sure how Code Red works, but they don't really go through Amazon all that much. I don't know why, um, but I do know there's some odd things about uh, Code Red. One is is that they do get licensing deals to release these films so what they do is they uh, rent or get the rights to print a certain number of copies from whoever owns the print and uh, whether this is a public domain film or not as the back of the jacket says um, I don't know if Code Red owns the print or if they someone else does and they paid money to use it to remaster it uh, but either way, uh, a lot of Code Red films are only printed 1,000 to 3,000 usually. So they always go out of print pretty quick. Um, and that includes whether it's DVD or Blu-ray. Um, this one here, I'm not sure if it has a limited print. But um, where you can purchase it is two places. You can go to um, the Code Red's website. Oh, actually, there's three places. I'm sorry. The Code Red's website, which is uh, always a, a good place, uh, because first off, you're buying it directly through Code Red, so there is no middleman, and uh, you're giving him, meaning Bill Olson, all the money, uh, which, whether you like Bill Olson or not, I, I know there's been some people uh, in the Internet community that don't like him personally, but uh, the good thing about bill is if you get, give him the money directly that keeps him in business because he's the one that's given us all these great uh, cult films uh, so um, I usually try to go through there but you can also buy it through Diabolic DVD and you can also buy it through Screen Archives uh, there may be other places too but those are the three big places where you can find Code Red films um, and uh, there's another place too called Ronix Flicks which is a uh, owned by the two Olsen Brothers uh, and they release some of the more recent uh, films. This one's a 2005 I think um, re-release. So um, if you do want to check this film out you can get it there and I, I think it's uh, anywhere between $19.99 to $25.99. Um, obviously it's a little more expensive than your typical Best Buy 
uh, release. Oddly, Code Red used to uh, have a, a deal where they used to get their flicks into Best Buy, but uh, they don't do that anymore. Um, but the thing is, is that if you want to get these boutique labels, obviously they have to charge a little more to just get um, any money back because they're, they're obviously small operations, a handful of people, and they don't make that much money. Um, and and if you like black exploitation films that have a lot of violence, nudity, and um, thrower moments, uh, this this one's pr a pretty good one. And uh, a price of twenty to twenty six dollars isn't that bad, uh, especially um, with the absolutely fantastic 2D transfer of the film uh, on Blu-ray. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, the Black Gestapo. Um, if you're a Lee Frost fan, definitely pick it up. Uh, I like Lee Frost. He's a really good director. Uh, some people don't think all his work is good, but uh, everything I've seen of his so far is really good stuff. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say he's he's like a Scorsese or something like that, but, but his gritty stuff from the 60s uh, is really, really good good um, uh, thriller stuff. It really feels uh, gritty, and um, this one's a little different because um, it's a different subgenre, but um, you get the, the Lee Frost um, feel to it. So, uh, yeah, um, Code Reds, the Black Gestapo, uh, recommend. Okay, the film I am going to do a review on is the Boutique label Severin released uh, and they released it in two different versions um, um, I guess uh, the R-rated and the unrated version uh, two different discs they've done that a couple of times with a couple of the films I know uh, um, the Christina Lindbergh film uh, throw a uh, the girl with one eye or whatever it's called uh, that film was released in two ways as well um, and and uh, what it is is one actually has um, inserted in it uh, some uh, hardcore uh, nudity or, or not nudity but sex scenes specifically um, uh, so you can get it two ways uh, basically this film is called Malabimba the malicious whore which is obviously a very salacious title anyway um, but what happens is is um, the film supposedly was um, bought by a producer, and then that producer uh, then added uh, adult film shots to the film, similar to um, uh, the film Caliglia, which uh, is probably the most well-known that that happened to. Um, but there's debate whether or not uh, this film was actually shot with those shots uh, done, and then um, people after when it was released, depending on where it was released, the um, X-rated or the R-rated version of the film, um, everybody claimed that uh, they didn't know about the produ production shots by the producing company, um, the Hardcore Editions, and yet, based off of uh, how it's shot, you could argue that could be a fib and uh and so forth but either way that's not important um the main thing is uh what this film is and what it's about and and uh whether it's any good and, and whatnot um 
so I, I'll, I'll give a uh, the IMDb uh, for the film, um, and uh, let, me, let me do it here. This is what it says. It says, uh, uh, after the matriarch of once rich and influential aristocratic Karali family dies, her nearly bankrupt family decides to hold a seance in this decrepit castle and contact her spirit. Unfortunately, they contact instead the malicious and possibly demonic spirit of their evil, hedonistic, and decadent late cousin, Lucrucia, that, after assaulting and messing a bit with those present at the summoning, ends up possessing the dead woman's virginal teenage daughter, Bimba. Bimba suddenly becomes overtly sexual and starts acting out in a completely unhinged, aggressive, and sexually provocative manner in front of her family and their guests, all while brutally insulting them. She tries to satisfy her confusing demonic urges with various acts, but quickly moves on to seducing those around her, starting with her deathly ill uncle, uh, who's unable to, to prevent... Um, this due to his his disabilities. So that's the IMDb. Uh, let me read the back jacket of uh, the Severin release here that I have. Um, let's see. Some hailed it as one of the most de degenerate DVD treasures in Eurosleaze history. Others suggested that Severin films be arrested, deported, and strongly prayed for. Now, everyone can experience the unholy pleasures of teenage temptress Bimba, played by Katel Leonek, in her one and only screen appearance, as she plunges her f entire family, including her widowed father, her wanton aunt, invalided uncle, and even a beloved nun caretaker, into the depths of sexual depravity. Co-starring Mariangela Giordano from Satan's Baby Doll, Patrick Still Lives, and Burial Ground. Yes, that film, Burial Ground. And Patricia Webley from Salon Kitten, among others, co-star in this jaw-dropping shocker directed by Andrea Bianchi, uh, also known for a number of films, which I'll discuss in a bit. Uh, still stuffed with an astonishing amount of degenerate ecstasy and now presented unrated via an exclusive pact with Satan himself. Uh, includes extras of deleted scenes. Also, the integral version. Watch the feature with deleted scenes incorporated back into the movie. Mala Bimba Uncovered. Interviews with actress Mariangela Giordano and cinematographer Franco Vila. And, of course, the theatrical trailer. Um, so that's uh, the disc by Severin. Uh, unfortunately, it is unfortunately out of print in the sense that Severin does not print it anymore. Um, however, you can purchase it through eBay and Amazon still, Amazon uh, through third-party sellers, uh, so either new or used. I actually bought it uh, uh, through Amazon third-party uh, third sellers. Um, and uh, was able to get it there. So uh, it's still available, it's just that you're not going to be able to buy it um, uh, straight through Amazon. And uh, the, the reason is is because it is out of print. So the copies you're going to buy are either used or uh, older copies still sealed that uh, people are selling. Uh, I bought actually a used copy, uh, an excellent quality, um, and not um, damaged or anything. So uh, 
uh, high recommend to check these third-party outs, especially the ones that have a lot of positive reviews. Um, now, the film was, uh, uh, says it's directed by Andrew White, which, of course, is not true. Uh, just like a lot of uh, Italian horror films, uh, when they put it out to English nations or English language nations, uh, they changed the name of some of the folk, uh, including the director, in this case, uh, Angiana Bianchi. They changed it to, um, as I stated, Andrew White. So, there you go, Andrea and Bianche, that means Andrew White, you anglicize it, right? So they just they just anglicize his name and call him Andy White um, because uh, if they market it as an Italian language film or a film that's dubbed, uh, some people shied away for the, from these films back in the 70s. This is a 1979 film, um, and uh, it's a dubbed film like most uh, European films, continental films from that era. Uh, a lot of actors from different nations, Germany, Portugal, Spain, Italy, England, France, uh, you name it. Uh, these actors um, all were hired and they all spoke in their native tongue and then the, the um, soundtrack is tossed away and then dubbed for whatever country the film is to be released. And of course, unfortunately, depending on um, your country, you could get a different cut of the film because of, um, uh, I guess, rating system issues and things of that nature or whatnot. Um, now, uh, the people behind the film, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk first um, about the, the director, um, Andy White. Ha ha ha. Again, uh, Andrea Bianchi. Uh, Andrea Bianchi uh, is a pretty well known um, genre director. Uh, from Italy. Uh, I believe he's still alive. Um, he is um, big in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s. Um, for example, uh, some of his f most famous films uh, that are well known for, for cult fanatics or psychotronic viewers are Strip Nude for Your Killer, which is um, obviously one of the more salacious titled films that you could probably get. Uh, definitely a uh, eye catcher of a name for sure. Uh, however, it's a well-known giallo. Uh, giallo again is um, a horror film that is basically a slasher, the Italian version of slasher. I discussed it a bit um, in uh, the very first psychotronic uh, review episode. Um, but um, you can actually get that fully remastered on Blu-ray. Um, you can buy it either an individual disc from Blue Underground. Uh, or actually anywhere, but it's by the boutique company Blue Underground. Or you can buy it in a, a three-pack with The Night Train Murders and Baba Yaga. And um, that's called The Killer Thrillers Collection. And uh, it's a damn good deal because it's like 25 bucks and you get three films. And each of these films were at one time selling for $20 a piece. Um, and so... Uh, what I would I would state is uh, if you're interested in some of his other films, they are on um, remastered 2K releases on Blu-ray by a lot of um, uh, boutique companies. Uh, for example, uh, he did Cry of a Prostitute, which is from 1974, another very malicious, salacious named film um, that has a, a pretty good cast. 
Uh, this is actually getting a Blu-ray release in 2017. It hasn't come out yet by Code Red. So um, you can you can find that this year coming out. You can find Strip Nude for your killer already right now uh, by Blue Underground. Um, you can find um, um, Burial Ground, which is uh, the film uh, that he did uh in 1981, which is a zombie film, um, highly uh, enjoyable zombie film that has been remastered by Severin as well, uh, but also you can get the Shriek Show uh, boutique label, their version of it, both on Blu-ray. Uh, that The Shriek Show is now out of print, so the Severin just came out like three months ago, uh, fully remastered uh, on Blu-ray. Um, obviously, um, if you want, you can get this one here, Malimba, Malabimba, the malicious whore. Um, this one's not on Blu-ray, but uh, again, it's on DVD, and uh, uh, Severin released it that. Uh, so, so he's d he's done a number of uh, really good uh, genre films that have been re-released recently, or are going to be re-released recently. Um, so, uh, not not as big of a name as say Sergio Martino or um Dario Argento or, or whatnot, but but definitely uh one of the more noted uh Italian genre directors of uh, uh bygone days. Um now the cast. Um I want to bring some of these folks up because they're they're fairly important to be honest. Um as I mentioned uh, Mary Angela Giordano is in this film and uh, at this time she was in her forties and um she starred in a number of pretty damn good horror films at this point in her career. Uh, this one here, as I mentioned, Mala Bimba, The Malicious Horror, but she also was in Patrick Still Lives, which is another uh, film similar to this in its, um, its uh, cult status. Uh, and then, of course, she was in uh, Burial Ground, uh, Bianchi's uh, later film. Um, and then she was in another film called Satan's Baby Doll, which is kind of the same vein as this film um, and uh, so she had a run of four really good horror films uh, I've, I've seen them all and I actually have copies of all of them others may be uh, reviewed in a future uh, episode but um, she does a, um, a lot of nudity in all these films and um, the thing is, is uh, noted by many release companies. Uh, if you go to Mondo Digital, DVD Drive-In, Rock Shock, uh, Pop, um, Cine Exploitation, um, Cool Ass Cinema, all you know, all the the blog websites out there that that review these boutique films uh, in written format, uh, they all state the same thing, which is um, for for a 40 year old, she looks like she's 20. Um, so uh, she's she's a fairly well-known uh, genre actress in some big-name uh, horror films, uh, specifically from the co European continent, uh, continental horror, not England. Um, also um, of note is um, uh, Patricia Webley. Uh, Patricia Webley uh, has done a, another few uh, horror films as well. Uh, she's actually pretty pretty well-known cult actress uh, from Italy too, uh, even if her name is, it doesn't sound Italian. I think it, it may actually be a stage name uh, because she, like a lot of folks, they change their names depending on what country they go from, but she's mostly well-known now as 
uh, Patricia Weldley. Now, uh, uh, that's actually the reason why I, I picked this film up was because of Patricia Webley. Um, uh, even though I, I like Bianchi and some of his films, and I do like uh, um, Giordano as well, uh, and some of her films, um, it was specifically Webley that got my curiosity. Um, she actually uh, has done a couple of films that have been released uh, recently. Um, Play Hotel uh, is a is a f new uh, release by Rero, which is an Italian boutique company that actually releases a uh, number of films uh, in the United States. Um, so similar to uh, Redemption or whatnot, they're, they're f or Arrow, where if they're from Europe, they actually uh, do business in the States and have the rights for releasing films in the States. And uh, Play Hotel is a film that stars Patricia Webley. Um, and uh, then she's also in a film called The Bloodsucker Leads the Dance, which is uh, released by Redemption Video. And... Um, so I, I had some curiosity of seeing more of her filmography. Uh, so that's the, actually the reason why I finally decided to uh, pick this film up. Um, and uh, just as uh, um, the other lead actresses in this film, uh, Patricia Webley um, has a huge role and plays um, a part, important part in the film. Um, and she's pretty damn good looking as well. Um, uh, and then also of note is um, the actor um, that plays Alfredo, I think it is, or no, uh, I'm sorry, the actor plays Andrea, Andrea, and his name is Enzo Fisicella, and uh, he actually was in um, Strip Nude for Your Lover. Um, as you can get gather, um, the... The same actors are, are being used by Bianchi. Uh, he was actually also in Play Motel, for that matter, with uh, Patricia Webley. So it wouldn't be surprised me that either they have the same uh, casting agent or um, they were buddies and one recommended the other to Bianchi or whatnot because uh, um, there's a lot of overlapping um, of, of people uh, that Bianchi uses here. Um, and then uh, uh, the the actress uh, that plays the lead, Katel Lelenek, only had this one starring role, um, which is curious uh, for whatever reason. But um, uh, that's pretty much the cast and the crew um, and uh, so forth. But let me, let me talk about the film a bit. Um, it it's it's basically seventy nine, right? So. Uh, in 74, The Exorcist uh, had been released, uh, or 73, the, I think it actually made it in 73. The Exorcist had been released in the States, uh, the Peter Beatty film. And um, what happened was, right after that, all the ripoffs started coming out. And when I say ripoffs, uh, you know, similar to Asylum and the Sci-Fi Network and whatnot, or, or, or whatever, Roger Corman, back in the day, those people uh, would always try to follow suit and so when Exorcist it was such a big hit and in that time anyway uh, devil films were huge anyway I mean as as I uh, mentioned on this uh, boutique 
uh, review podcast, uh, I talk about um, the Black Gestapo and Lee Frost writing the film The Race with the Devil, starring Peter Fonda. Uh, the, and that was a 75 film. Uh, whether it was the States or continental Europe or, or England, the Britain, um, devil films were huge. They were they were like the, the big thing. Uh, that was the, the horror go-to. Uh, as the slasher was in the in the 80s, and uh, so this film, being 1979, not only uh, followed in the footsteps of films like The Omen and The Exorcist, and could be argued to be a copy or or or, or a play on those films. Um, what it does is it grabs the the hip thing of the time, which is the devil stuff for horror films, but also um, follow the suit with the most popular of those films, which again is uh, The Exorcist, The Omen, and uh, the 69 film of Rosemary's Baby. Uh, now, um, uh, the, the thing that's curious about this film, though, is that even though some folks will try to state that this is one of the Exorcist follow-ups films to, to try to um, uh, follow the money bags of The Exorcist, um, it it really isn't. It it has some elements that are similar. Obviously, uh, the the main thing is is it has a young girl who may or may not be possessed by a demon, similar to the Exorcist. And there is one scene specifically. Uh, there's a party scene where this girl does something similar to what the Linda Blair Reagan character did in the Exorcist. Um, at that party scene in that film. Uh, though in this film it's a little bit more salacious. Um, besides that scene, uh, the two films are not much alike at all, except that they both have uh, a girl that may or may not be possessed by a satanic demon. Um, now, uh, the film is curious because uh, even though it's a horror film, uh, it it isn't really a bloody so. If, if you're thinking of horror uh, in uh, the 70s uh, or, or 80s, um, even though it's not anything like the film The Changeling or, or, or a film like that, uh, that's the type of horror it would have in it. In other words, it's, it's, it's uh, not bloody horror. Um, oddly, the, the film that I would, I would compare it more to would be something like um, the Entity, starring Barbara Hershey. Again, not much like it, but it has that type of feel to it, that type of violence to it, so not much blood, but definitely the sleaze, like a film like The Entity. Uh, and again, that's specifically because of the um, the uh, nudity and the salacious content of what is happening in this film. Um, now, the, the three lead actresses uh, in the film... Um, of note, uh, being the, the the lead girl Cattell Leanek, and then Patricia Webley, and then uh, the actress Mary Angela Giordano. Uh, all three of them uh, get um, completely um, in their birthday suit. So this is a lot, a lot of, lot of um, typical stuff you would see in continental Europe horror. This, this has it. So it has, it doesn't have its blood, but does, it definitely has its boobs and horror elements. Um, the film uh, 
has an interesting thing about uh, the lead characters uh, because the Patricia Webley character, especially, is arguably the most interesting character because she, um, I guess, they, 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 what they're trying to do in this film is show the the flip coin of of womanhood because you have um, the nun and then you have the young innocent girl and then you have this woman uh, played by uh, Patricia Webley who's uh, the aunt of Bimba who is married to someone that has landed up disabled due to I think a car accident so he's uh, in a wheelchair paraplegic can't speak uh, so it's basically a vegetable. I, I, unfortunately, that, that's the only term I can I think of. And so she has a wandering eye, and the pat the matriarch of this wealthy family wants her other son, the son that is Bimba's father, who's a widower, to marry his sister-in-law if she could get an annulment or, or whatnot from the disabled son because the sister-in-law played by Patricia Webley has a lot of money as well and can save the family financially um, and so she doesn't the matriarch doesn't want to lose um, the Patricia Webley's character from the family after her husband passes away, which you could gather is probably going to happen sooner or later because of unfortunately his medical conditions. Um, but either way, the, the, the Patricia Webley's character is curious because she is more liberated and more uh, wandering eye because of her situation and her husband being a vegetable. And so um, her character is even if she's played very um, over the top, she's actually very much a likable character, and probably the most um, logical thinking character, and I think that is kind of unique in both exploitation cinema as well as um, at the time. Uh, it's, it's difficult to explain it without giving away too much, uh, but either way, her character is played somewhat as a, a, a negative. I don't, not a villainous, but someone that would, you would look at as negative. Yet she grows on you, and she also turns out to be the the smartest character. And um, um, I, I I thought she was a shining point of the film for a number of reasons besides being uh, pretty good looking. Um, and you get to see her completely, yeah. But um, the the film, um, I, I, would, I would recommend it because it, it has everything you would want in a, in a midnight movie. Um, it is pure psychotronic. Um, it, it has uh, a pretty damn good cast of uh, some cult film regulars. And... Um, uh, as well as a director that is uh, pretty well known for his giallos and horror films. Um, the first ten minutes is pretty pretty intense horror film, and then the last uh, remaining hour and 15, 20 minutes of film is, is a curiosity because 
everybody plays the the role of Bimba not being possessed. And I thought that was pretty cool as well because usually in films like this, people just jump over the fence and get on board and say uh, there's a supernatural element and whatnot. But when a film is supposed to take place in the real world, and that's one of the, the pretty cool things about films like The Omen and The Exorcist, is that um, it takes a long time before people say, okay, there's something supernatural going on. Because you always try to, f to think of... Um, uh, normal things like mental illness and things of that nature as the cause before you just say, okay, the demon's here. And this film, everybody, including Patricia Webley's character and um, her father and the grandmother and whatnot, they all believe that she is either uh, mentally unstable or she's in a rut because of... Um, uh, adolescence or because um, she's been isolated in this wealthy estate not um, living I guess a normal um, you know middle-class life with with fellow students and whatnot that they think maybe she's just depressed you know things of that nature uh, go on and they even talk about maybe um, split personalities like you know whatever and so um, I, I liked how the film kept that going pretty much uh, throughout the film. And then uh, the last scene of the film is pretty intense, too. Um, so it, it, it has two curiosities. It has a bookends at the beginning and end of the film that are fairly intense horror. And then the middle part is the sleazy drama of trying to figure out what's wrong with Bimba. Um, so um, it's it's a good film in a midnight movie way. And so if you like um, sleazy horror films that um, at least try to keep things in the real world without immediately going off the deep end where you have to like roll your eyes and say, I don't believe this. Uh, this film does not have those weaknesses, and so um, that's cool. And then, of course, if you like uh, demon, devil, possession type films, uh, this is this is a good one as well. Um, and the Severin release is pretty damn good. Um, I do like the fact that they have the integral version on the disc. So basically, what it is is that they have um, um, this cut, most likely from the America, the American, you know, drive-in release of the film. And then what they did is they found other releases of it from in Europe or whatever uh, on, on videotape of scenes that were cut out that are actually fairly good and fairly um, uh, worthy to be reintegrated into the film. But since the only pieces that they found were in video cassette uh, condition rather than the negative to remaster it. Um, it obviously not going to be is in good quality. So what they did was they put them as deleted scene extras on the disc, but you can play it as the integrated version. So 
you you go into the extras on the DVD choose this integrated version and then you can watch the entire film with these deleted scenes recut back into the film of course that the scenes are not as in good quality because again it's 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 a, a nice HD transfer of the film uh, or, or, or DVD transfer of the film uh, with pieces from a video cassette reintegrated into the cut but at least you get that option to watch it with these pieces. So maybe one day, you know, this film will, will be released with all these pieces found on an original negative and, and maybe even remastered into a Blu-ray. But the DVD film as it is, is in excellent condition. And then you'd still do have the option to watch it with um, extended scenes and deleted scenes reintegrated if you so desire, even if those scenes are not as in good and pristine quality as the rest of the feature. Uh, so that's another hugely positive thing uh, by um, Severin for what they did to get this disc out to us. Um, so I, I would recommend it. Um, it's definitely a pretty cool film. Um, again, you can get it in the unrated or the R-rated versions. Um, that depends on, on your preference um, and you know whatever it's your, your, your right whichever you prefer um, now um, Severin I have to say is a pretty damn good company uh, I want to give them a, a couple of dibs here uh, the first thing is is um, when I had lost uh, my slip s sleeves you know the cardboard slip covers for two of the films that I have um, of theirs, I I wrote to them through email and asked if uh, I could purchase um, the slip covers again because they were unfortunately mistakenly thrown out, and they were kind enough to just give them uh, to me for free. They just mailed. They said no problem. We'll take care of it, and they mailed me um, the two slip covers. So that was pretty cool. Um, so their customer service is absolutely fantastic. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is um, one of their discs that I'll probably review in sometime in the future. But there's a, a film called uh, Zombie Holocaust, also known as Dr. Butcher, M.D., and they released that last year in 2016 uh, in a uh, fully remastered Blu-ray edition. And uh, it's absolutely one of the, the best discs I've ever seen for a boutique. And then they also um, re-released um, two ha ha Harry Novak films uh, by a director um, that um, had lost the rights to them uh, until recently. Uh, the films are called Axed and uh, uh, Kidnapped Coed, and that disc was released last year as well by them as a double uh, feature. Um, with dozens of extras, and that is fantastic as well. So, uh, for a company that um, that's a boutique label, and no better or worse than any of these others because they're all really good, um, I have to give them dibs for their customer service. And f last year, 2016, they released two of the best uh, boutique discs out there. Um, so, uh, just a little 
dib to Severin, uh, the company that released uh, Mala Bimba, the Malicious Whore, which I just reviewed. Uh, so that's uh, the film, uh, Mala Bimba, the Malicious Whore, uh, Severin released, uh, though out of print, both the R-rated or the unrated ver versions. Uh, they're still uh, available on eBay and Amazon uh, through third-party folk, and that's where I bought mine, and um, it's a high recommend. The film I am going to review now is a film from uh, the early 70s. Um, basically, it's one of those films that, that well, it's, it was called a number of titles, but uh, it was a 1975 film, um, and it's probably most well known as The Night Train Murders, or Night Train Murders, without the T-H-E in front, so Night Train Murders. Um, it was known also uh, as Last Stop on the Night Train, um, but basically what it is, after uh, the Sean Cunningham, Wes Craven film, Last House on the Left, and its notoriety and somehow breakout from Grindhouse to popularity, a lot of films began to come out that tried to rip off that film. Uh, and, and the curiosity is, is that um, a lot of these films came from Europe, and a lot of these films also were just names or had similar names to Last House on the Left, but were nothing like it. But many of them were actually um, not rip-offs, but uh, uh, following the money bags that Last House on the Left made. Uh, a lot of folks wanted to do similar films to try to um, cash in or gain, get fame or whatnot. Um, some, of, some of the ones that uh, I know... Um, is obviously this film here, and then the last house on the beach is another, um, and and then even in Brazil uh, they had one called Violence and Flesh. It was called. Um, most of them all were sleazy uh, because of their um, topic, which is uh, sexual violence, but uh, not all of them were necessarily graphically. Um, depicted as, uh, and were more implied or just sleazy and horrific without um, the nudity and, and sex that, that or rape that, that, for example, Last House uh, on the left had. Um, now, uh, this film here, Night Train Murders, um, is uh, now released in the USA, at least anyway, uh, from the boutique label Blue Underground. Uh, Blue Underground is definitely one of the best uh, boutique labels and one of the oldest. Um, they release a number of films um, uh, yearly. Uh, for example, um, the last two big releases they've released was December and January. Uh, December 2016, they released um, a film from uh, Jess Franco. Um, called 99 Woman, which is arguably one of the very first um, women in prison films. And uh, that release, uh, they have it in two and three uh, disc editions. 
um, uh, the, the one with the thrower disc actually has the French cut of the film, uh, which actually uh, has uh, hardcore inserts. Um, but I but either way, um, they remaster a lot of great films um, and put them out. Uh, the film they released in January was uh, the fantastic release of Love Camp Nine, which is actually uh, a film directed by Lee Frost, which is um, the director of The Black Gestapo, which I actually do a review on in this episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews Volume 3. Um, and that film was also uh, produced by uh, the produc production uh, company owned by Bob Cressy, who was a, um, one of the, the bigger uh, production gurus of the 60s and early 70s of uh, genre films. So I may have mentioned uh, this in a prior episode of Halloween Boutique, Psychotronic Reviews, but uh, Blue Underground is founded by a guy named um, William Lustig, and William Lustig is the director of uh, horror films Maniac Cop, Vigilante, and uh, probably most well-known for the Joe Spinell film Maniac. Um, so he owns this company, and uh, he's released a number of, of uh, pretty impressive uh, genre films. Um, and uh, this is one of the films from Blue Underground that he released, again, called Night Train Murders. Uh, Night Train Murders can actually be bought uh, two ways. It can be bought as a solo disc, um, completely remastered with extras under the title Night Train Murders. But you can also buy it in a three-disc set um, called Killer Thrillers Collection. All Blu-rays, all... Um, remastered all with extras and you can get that disc generally anywhere between um or not well it's three discs so it's if they're all in their separate disc um for around uh, 18 to 27 dollars so that's a pretty good deal because you can get um uh, three films cult films uh including strip nude for your killer and baba yaga along with night train murders all for eight bucks or less combined uh, so so three films for 24 bucks basically and they are the exact same releases of the individual releases of these films um which were all at one time twenty dollars a piece so uh a fantastic deal killer thrillers collection um as the way i would recommend you buy this film if you wanted to see it rather than just buying the night train murders separately um now uh this film is loaded with uh, people of note in continental Europe horror films. Um, first off, the director. Uh, the director is a guy named Aldo Lado. Aldo Lado, um, and he is known for a lot of uh, giallo films and things of that nature. Um, some of his his more important films is Who Saw Her Die from 1972, and um, obviously this film, but uh, I think uh, the f film that a lot of people probably know is Short Night of Glass Dolls uh, from 1971, starring the American actress Barbara Bach, also known as Ringo Starr's wife. Um, so so he's, he's uh, one of the bigger Italian directors from the 70s, 
Um, I think he's still living today, but I don't, I don't think he does anything uh, of note. Uh, he's basically retired. Um, but the film's loaded with with who's who in continental Europe cinema. Um, so basically, uh, let me read the the back jacket first, and then um, talk about each individual um, uh, people in the film and the film itself and all that other wonderful stuff. And uh, this is what it says on the back jacket of my version of the film, uh, which is in the Killer Thrillers collection. Uh, so it's a abbreviated synopsis, uh, since they have to fill fit in three uh, synopsises for three films on the back jacket. Uh, and this is what it has to say. It says... Um, Night Train Murders was released as Second House on the Left, New House on the Left, and Torture Train. The ad screamed, most movies last less than two hours, this one of everlasting torment. It remains one of the most graphically fiendish films in exploitation history, the story of two teenage girls traveling through Europe forced into a nightmare of sexual assault and sadistic violence. Um, so basically what it is is you have two girls, um, college girls, from Germany, Munich, Germany, through Austria to Italy, uh, to basically, um, the two girls, one of them is from Italy, the other, I believe, is German, and they are basically, um, on school break, and they're going to visit one of uh, the girl's parents, uh, the Italian girl's parents in Italy for the week. Um, so they're going to take a train. Um, that's how they're going to do it. So what happens is, is you, you got a couple of uh, no good bums, uh, two actors, uh, one is actually of note, um, but uh, we'll talk about all the people behind the roles after. Uh, so they, basically these two guys, um, uh, mug some folk in Germany and then to escape the cops they just jump on this train that happens to have the same girls on the train um, and then uh, we meet uh, some various other characters um, including this wealthy woman who is what I would call an amoral person uh, very interesting character, the most interesting character in the film, and I'll talk about her in a second, um, among other folks. And then we have um, flashes to Italy, where the parents of the girl are having a dinner party, and they are waiting for the arrival of their daughter and her friend. Um, <coughs> and bad things that happen uh, between uh, Munich to Italy. Um, now, uh, the folks behind the film, uh, I, I mentioned the director, uh, but um, let me talk about some of the other folks. Uh, the first one I want to bring up is some of the people who uh, wrote the script. Uh, basically, uh, Aldo Lado uh, co-wrote the script, but uh, a couple of things that are curious that I only figured out once I decided to review this film was... Um, and it's total coincidence, is that uh, one of the other screenwriters, Ettore Sanzo, uh, was uh, the writer behind Last House on the Beach, which I just mentioned. And so um, 
that film was 1978, so obviously this film was was a starting point for his Last House on the Beach, uh, which is similar themed, if not exactly the same. Uh, the other screenwriters, there's four of them, uh, besides these, uh, the director and um, Sanzo, is uh, Roberto Infaselli, who actually comes from a large group of uh, Italian film producers and writers. Uh, so he's he's fairly uh, well known. And then uh, the last is um, a guy named uh, Renato Izzo, who actually wrote uh, The Giallo, The Killer Wore Gloves. Uh, so uh, a lot of all four are well known uh, in in uh, Italian horror films, specifically uh, giallo films. Some even would call this a giallo film, even though it's it's more of a uh, rape revenge type film, similar to Last House on the Left. Now the actors um, are important note, um, I think anyway. Um, basically. Um, the two girls, played by Irene Miracle and Laura D'Angelo. Um, the Italian is played by Laura D'Angelo, but the, the, the German is played by Irene Miracle. And Irene Miracle is the only one of note I, I, or I care about because um, Laura D'Angelo really didn't do much otherwise. Uh, but Irene Miracle was a, uh, actually an American actress that went over to Europe, similar to Camille Keaton and very and Barbara Bach and various others um, who couldn't break into Hollywood. They would go to Europe and and become big over there. Uh, and Irene Miracle actually um, uh, was an interesting actress because she was in obviously Night Train Murders, but then she got a role in Alan Parker's Midnight Express, um, the the film that was written by Oliver Stone. Uh, that was a Academy Award-nominated film about uh, the Turkish prison system and based on a, a true story. Um, and she played the girlfriend of the incarcerated uh, prisoner there uh, and actually won a Golden Globe for her role in that. So even though she... And it was interesting, too, because it, she was won it as the, a, the new, quote-unquote, new starlet, and yet she had already been well-known doing uh, exploitation cinema in, in Europe. Uh, so it was, it's kind of, you know, there you go, Hollywood, you know, thumbing their nose at uh, international film uh, and only paying attention to their own work because uh, she was no, in no way a, a new star by any means because she had already done uh, numerous films, including one of the leads in Night Train Murders from three years prior. Um, but uh, she was in uh, um, one of the lead roles in... Dario Argento's uh, film Inferno. Uh, so she did go back to Italy and 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 Europe to do uh, films over there, even after getting some note uh, for Midnight Express. Um, and then then she uh, had uh, roles in uh, Charles Band's Puppet Master, uh, among other films. Uh, so she she's been in a lot of genre films. Um, now um, uh, there's the two, the two hooligans, um, but only one is of note, uh, and that would be Flavio Bucci, and the reason I want to bring his name up is specifically for the fact that he played an important role in the film uh, Suspiria, uh, where he played uh, the blind piano player in that film, uh, so anybody who's uh, seen that film, and believe me, you're going to be seeing a lot of that uh, at the end of 2017, because there's an American remake coming out. Uh, to be released in Halloween, 
but even more importantly, uh, I believe it's Synapse, the boutique label, but it could be Severin. I always confuse the two. Um, that is releasing a Suspiria uh, Blu-ray um, Ultimate Edition. Uh, so that y that's coming out uh, at the end of 2017 as well, obviously to uh, uh, go hand-in-hand -hand with the American remake. Uh, but either way, um, Bucci uh, has an integral role in that film. Um, so folks uh, can see him there, and that's where he's probably most well-known for, because that's more of a high-profile film than this film, obviously. Um, now, The Woman on the Train, the mysterious wealthy woman on the train, uh, is uh, played by a woman called Macha Maril. Uh, Macha Maril uh, was actually a Philly big actress in Europe, and had worked with some pretty damn good uh, folk uh, such as Jean-Luc Godard and Louis Bunuel and, and Dario Argento, for that matter. And uh, the Dario Argento film that she was in uh, was Deep Red, which is uh, one of the better giallos. And uh, she plays um, the psychic in that film uh, and one of the, the cooler, spoiler alert, deaths uh, in that film. Um, but um, she, being a French actress... Uh, she actually did some work in, in uh, Quebec as well, so she she did a lot of work in the in North America. Um, but the thing that's funny about her is that she's not actually ethnically French. She's actually um, half Russian, half Ukrainian, and her real name is Princess Maria Magdalena Vladimirovna Gagarina, and. Um, the thing that's, that's curious about her is that obviously, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, she's obviously comes from um, the Russian and Ukrainian royal families, um, who, by the way, hate each other, and always have hated each other. Never mind what's going on there now. Um, but uh, the thing is, is that she has uh, direct relations with um, the the R Russian and Ukrainian nobility from pre-Soviet. Uh, when, when they were overthrown, so and she's one of the ones that um, are the descendants directly related to them. And, and if there is ever um, uh, a monarch that ever went back to Russia, similar to what happened in Spain, and uh, after Franco uh, gave power back to the monarchy, uh, she would, she, her family would be one of the folks that could be considered for the throne because uh, uh, I think she has direct relations to Catherine uh, the Great um, but the odd thing is is that here is this woman of wealth who's doing a lot of B films and uh, it's kind of funny uh, and some saliciously B films for that matter um, now um, a couple other people of note um, the actor and actress that play the parents of the Italian girl on the train um, the male lead is is Enrico Maria Salerno, and I hope this isn't boring you just reading off um, the the actors in films because uh, I, I honestly don't know exactly what to uh, talk about specifically. I mean, obviously I could just talk about the film and I could just talk about what we see on f camera, but I, I think a lot of folks are interested in the people behind the the films and how uh, they fit into. Um, this cult cinema so uh, at least I'm going that route and um, this guy here Enrico Maria Salano 
uh, was an Italian actor that actually did the dubbing of Clint Eastwood in the spaghetti westerns that uh, Sergio Leone directed. Uh, Sergio Leone, the director of A Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, he was the director of those three uh, Clint Eastwood uh, films. Um, and they're called spaghetti westerns because they're directed and written by Sergio Leone. Um, so Clint Eastwood kind of did the same as a lot of actresses, uh, like uh, the lead actress in this film, where they go over to Europe because they couldn't break into Hollywood. Um, the When when the, the film was um, released in Italy, which uh, you would think it would be because it is an Italian, there are Italian films, even though Clint Eastwood starred in them, uh, this guy here, this actor, dubbed all of Clint Eastwood's voice. So uh, that's a, kind of a curiosity um, uh, but uh, here he, he actually has a, a fairly leading role, and he's actually pretty damn good in this film. Um, the next person of curiosity is his wife, uh, the actress Marina Berti. And Marina Berti, um, the thing that, about her is very interesting is is that at this point in her career, she was already 49 years old, I think. And yet, in my opinion, she looked like she she was as young as the the two lead girls um oddly she could have played the mother of either of the girls but um i think she looked absolutely incredible uh she aged very well uh in this film um at, at the age of 49 to play the mother um and um yeah she she has a huge filmography career she could have been a huge star um to american audiences had she been 20 years younger because uh, she was an absolute beauty and um, uh, what I, I've been uh, read anyway, a, a fantastic actress and she's really good in here, this film here. And um, had she been um, uh, 20 years younger, she would have probably been in all these Italian um, and European films, not just horror films, but films in general that could have made art house theaters in the United States and, and would have been much more well known to all of us um, had she um, been uh, a bit younger. But uh, here she's absolutely uh, beautiful, abs un incredible woman, looking woman. Um, now, um, other folks of interest, uh, there's what we call um, a mysterious man on the train. Um, and he has a pretty big role because he's the guy that actually... Uh, gets everything rolling at the end to uh, get the conclusion we do get. Um, and the actor plays our, that plays this character is called Franco Fabrizi. And uh, Franco Fabrizi um, has worked with a number of major Italian actors, not just in B-films such as this film, but uh, with Michelangelo, Antonioni, as well as Federico Fellini in uh, some important roles there. Um, also of note, is uh, one of the party guests at uh, the Italian girl's parents, uh, the actress Delila De Lazaro, um, uh, was was one of the the women in um, at the party, and she was a hugely well-known uh, Italian model that uh, worked with Andy Warhol in uh, in 
Warhol's work. So uh, she did a lot of work in New York City as well as in Italy. Uh, even though her role is fairly small here, she um, is a well-known genre actress because she was in Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. She was in um, the film Frankenstein 80, which uh, was a film that um, Mar Mar Mario Mancini directed, and that's one of the films that a lot of folks are still waiting for uh, to hit um, Blu-ray as a remaster. Um, she was in uh, Sex Pot. Um, she was in um, the Vladimir Borowitz film uh, The Beast, which is a, a pretty uh, salacious, sleazy film that um, is directed by the same director that did The Strange Case of, of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, which I actually reviewed in the very first Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Um, and, of course, she was in a number of giallos, including the Pajama Girl case um, and so forth. Oh, oh, and she was actually also in uh, Dear Argento's Phenomena. So um, even though she has a small role here, she's hugely well-known in genre circles um, and so forth. Uh, so that's pretty much all the folks I wanted to bring up behind the film um, and in front of the camera. Um, now, now the film obviously has had an interesting track record um, because of its salaciousness uh, and sleaze, in a sense. The implied violence um, and, and it being sexual violence is is obviously shocking, but oddly, the film doesn't have too much um, uh, nudity. Um, it does have some, uh, including. Uh, um, bottomless nudity, but um, it's not as graphically nude uh, or, or graphic nudity as you would see in, in a lot of these horror films from the, s the 70s, specifically from Europe. Um, but its subject matter makes it more, um, I guess, uh, um, well-known or, or infamous. I guess that's the better word, infamous. Um, because of its subject matter, and uh, and indeed its subject matter is fairly, uh, yeah, uh, salacious. Uh, however, is the film any good? And uh, I actually thought it was pretty damn good. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, it was one of those films that was on my radar for a while since Blue Underground re originally released it, but for whatever reason, I never bothered checking it out. But then when um, the three-disc set Killer Thrillers collection came out, and uh, it was only $27, and I c could get all three films, and all three films from this set were on my radar, and all three films are the exact same disc from the solo releases with all the extras. Uh, it was definitely something that I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it up. Um, and so I decided to, to put the film in. Uh, because one of the listeners of Dark Discussions podcast, Malcolm Johnson, had watched it, and he said it was just okay, while Jason Lloyd of Horror Failure, uh, which everybody should go check out his podcast, uh, especially My Bloody Bits, which is fantastic. Um, it's a review podcast of all new releases, both boutique as well as brand new films, and um, uh, I highly recommend to check his podcast out. He said this film was great. 
Um, and so, uh, either way, um, the the disc itself has interviews, trailers, radio spots, and things of that nature. Still gallery and whatnot. Um, and um, the the thing is, is that uh, uh, I put the film in, and yeah, I, I actually did like it. And and the, and the thing that that made it different than just a typical giallo or typical slasher or typical sleaze horror film is the character played by um, the woman that I, I mentioned, uh, who was the actually from royalty in real life, and uh, that woman, again, her name is uh, Macha Morel. Uh, her character was very interesting, and I don't want to explain why she was interesting because there's a big twist uh, about her character. Uh, but but the thing that I will say about her character is. The, the ability to, that, that she has to to um, manipulate people, even though, um, and I don't mean this in any way uh, as sexist, but being, uh, you know, a, a, a woman, and the, her ability to manipulate these very, very bad people and not necessarily... Uh, be threatened by them after she gets the upper hand is is it just a brilliant performance um, by her and is what makes this film worth watching just because of her performance alone um, and again to use psychological power to do what she can do her character can do the, how it's well well written in this film is remarkable and, and the reason that it's remarkable isn't just for the fact that she has this power but at any moment these hooligans could do whatever they want to do to her and yet somehow she's able to not have bad things happen to her after she gets the upper hand on them and then she t herself turns into a character that is very ambiguous and I'm purposely saying ambiguous rather than other words because I don't want to give away any plots um, and so so it's 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 curious and it's done well in the screenplay to get that in there and even though it, it feels like it comes out of left field and doesn't make necessary sense if you just look at it on the surface level, if you look at it more deeply, it really fits and works and makes it curious piece of the film. It's a curiosity, and um, that's what what really p puts this film on the map, in my opinion, is her performance and what the screen four screenwriters were able to do with her character. Um, I, I was shocked where they went with this film. Uh, it was it was surprising. Um, it felt oddly realistic in some spots. The fates of certain characters, because they could have gone certain ways and had things like ah, oh, you know, someone survived or got to the cops or whatever. But everything happens realistically, but unmovie-like. And when I say unmovie-like, what 
should happen, does happen, but in a movie, you wouldn't expect it to happen. Um, so I, I think it works on many levels. Uh, it's, it's a brutal film. Um, the violence is, is, is definitely tough, um, but it but it's works in the setting of the film, and it works quite well. Um, the end of the film is, is very interesting. Um, it definitely has things to say about revenge and whether it's any good. And also, w one character in the film may actually get off free without seeing any jail time or even being arrested because what that character does in the film is so horrendous they have so many different alibis that it appears that they may actually get off and it's it's not answered whether or not they do get off or do they will get in trouble it could go either way based off of various facts or and things we see and know in the film that the cops may figure out or not figure out uh, but the thing that that makes it interesting is that it says something about people and what they can get away with can just fade back into normality um, and, and never be caught and, and maybe even just become normal people again. It, it's just it's just interesting. And so I, I would recommend the film for, for, for the screenplay. It's, it's just amazing, I thought. Um, though, on the surface, it's just a, a B-movie horror film that is pretty brutal. Um, but I, oddly, was looking at it more on the subtext, and I think I got every piece of the subtext uh, right on the dot, and, and it works because of that. And I could overlook the brutality of the film. Uh, but, again, if you're into midnight movies and B-horror films the brutality may not even matter or the saliciousness may not even matter because that's what cult films are, right? I mean, if you want to see a good drive-in horror film, this is it, just on, on the surface level, too. So, um, um, you can watch it in two different ways and still get an experience that either makes it a great film or makes it a disgusting film, depending on uh, uh, your perspective. And, uh, um, I have to say the Blu-ray release of it is fantastic for such a film, um, for what is basically a 42nd Street film like Last House on the Left, that you would think was made on the cheap, uh, independently, with little money, uh, but yet at, at, uh, is well done, well acted, has some pretty well-known cult actors, never mind the fact that... Um, it it is a um, a rip off of um, Last House on the left in a sense. Uh, so yeah, I would recommend the film. Uh, again, though, it's going to be depends on your tastes. But then again, most cult films, right? I mean, you have to have a certain taste to enjoy any certain cult film. And whether it's this film or any of the other films that I um, discussed in this episode, it's definitely uh, depends on your taste on uh, films. But I assume if if you I listen to this. You like B movie, cult film, grindhouse exploitation films, and uh, this film, the Night Train Murders.
is definitely a film I recommend. So this is Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews Volume 3. Hope you enjoyed it. I do have a couple updates related to the past. First off, on Volume 1, I did a review on the seven deaths of the cat's eye. And I watched the Blue Underground DVD of that. There is no uh, Blu-ray version of it uh, released in the States. However, just within the past month and a half or so, uh, 88 films in Europe, or I should say the UK, have released the film uh, on Blu-ray on a disc that is region free where anybody anywhere can watch the film. Uh, it does say region B on the back but that is only for legal reasons. They are, um, there's uh, some sort of treaty and so forth where the rights of films uh, can't be sold by certain companies in certain countries. So for example uh, Arrow may have the rights in England or the UK and Code Red could have the rights in North America. So uh, some complications with treaties and licensing. But either way, uh, this film, uh, Seven Deaths of the Cat's Eye, are now available on Blu-ray. I have not seen this edition uh, by 88 Films, which is actually a pretty good company, so I would not doubt it is uh, in good quality, uh, which can be purchased on Amazon UK or in the United States at DiabolicDVD.com, which uh, brings in a lot of uh, films from foreign nations to release in the States. Um, also, I assume you could probably get it on eBay as well. Uh, the next episode of this podcast will come out probably around April 11th through the 20th. I try to get it um, and in the middle of the month, uh, closer to the 11th. Um, so look for uh, that. Also, weekly you can listen to the Dark Discussions podcast, uh, where you will hear me, as well as my co-host, discuss any number of films related to horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, techno-thrillers, mysteries, and so forth, um, where we discuss one film usually in, in depth and critique it for a good hour and a half or sometimes longer. Uh, so folks should please go check out darkdiscussions.com while they wait for the next Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. I know uh, the name is very tongue-twisty. Uh, Paul Hewson, uh, who gave me feedback, stated that he thought it was funny that it had 11 syllables and actually preferred the name Psychotronic Boutique and drop uh, the other two words. And uh, that's that's actually a valid point. Um, maybe I'll consider doing that. Um, but uh, originally, I was going to call this the Halloween something podcast, but then I decided to add the Psychotronic. And uh, uh, because, again, it's a mix of various genres or subgenres in the cult cinema. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll take note of that. But uh, either way, uh, Volume 4 will be coming out within the month. Uh, and uh, if you want to do any feedback, darkdiscussions at AOL.com.
is where you can reach this podcast. And also Dark Discussion 1 is the Twitter account. And then uh, we are on Facebook as well. Dark Discussions Podcast Facebook group. So until next time, enjoy some of these cult films and maybe you'll uh, check out one of the ones I reviewed today. Do you like things that go bump in the night, bump, bump in the night, bump in the night, bump, night, night? Are you trying to say something like that? Successful at creating an astro Exactly. Really?